Game 40 here. So what the heck is the 4th of July holiday all about? What are we celebrating on the 4th of July? And so this is also known as Independence Day. So it goes back to the Declaration of Independence back to July 4, 1776, a Declaration of Independence that established the United States of America. The Founding Fathers signed off on this document, and by so doing, they were putting their lives on the line, right? If they had lost the war, everyone who signed off on this Declaration of Independence in all likelihood would have lost their heads. So they were really risking something by signing off on this document. And perhaps the most famous part of the Declaration of Independence is right near the top. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So what the heck does it mean all men are created equal? It just sounds like absolute nonsense. So the historian Peter Novak wrote in 1988, rarely have so many ambiguous terms and dubious propositions being compressed into such a brief passage. And this illustrates an important point that I use in my life. When you really want to understand something, you grant to to the speaker or to the writer that there is there is reality to what they're saying. And then you rack your mind to try to think, how could this possibly be true? So under what circumstances could we possibly believe that all men are created equal? Now, on the face of it, Right, this declaration is nonsense, but uh, Peter Novak says it's salutary nonsense. Right? Belief in these self-evident truths has for more than 200 years provided one of the strongest bulwarks of liberty and equality in the United States. Uh, I'm dubious about that. I believe it's more the demographic composition of the United States. It's shared history and heritage, shared race and religion that has provided stability to the United States rather than the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. But uh, you can find reasons why in virtually any context to accept that some seemingly false statement is possibly true. You just have to want it bad enough. So if you really want to understand what someone's saying, you have to accept provisionally that what they are saying is true and then just start racking your mind for all the ways that it can possibly be true. Now, we have limited time, we have limited energy, so we frequently tend to dismiss people and ideas that sound crazy to us so that we can concentrate our very limited resources on the few people and the few ideas that do matter to us. But if you want to know how could this possibly be true that all men are created equal, here's an explanation from a Stanford historian. So when Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, he's not talking about individual equality, right? What he really means is the American colonists as a people had the same rights of self-government as other peoples, and hence they too could declare independence, create a new government, and assume their separate and equal station among other nations. Now, after the American Revolution succeeded, Americans began reading the famous phrase another way. It now became a statement of individual equality that everyone and every member of a deprived group could claim for himself. And with each passing generation, our notion of who that statement covers has expanded. So it's now that promise of individual equality that has come to define our constitutional creed. But that's not how things started out, right? We, we started out with a very different understanding of all men are created equal. It was a collective understanding 
not all individuals are created equal. It's a collective understanding that all peoples ha have a right to assert themselves and to seek to create their own government. Right. One of my favorite uh, popular historians is Brian McClenahan. He just released a video on Joe Biden's strange understanding of American history. I love being proven right all the time. All these people really aren't committed to any of these things. They only love the Supreme Court when it does what they want to do. They don't love the Supreme Court when it doesn't do what they want to do. They only love the Constitution when it does what it wants them to do. And they don't love it when it's not doing what they want to do. So in reality, what you have is just what Calhoun predicted in the 1850s, right? When he posthumously published both of his works on the Constitution. But of course, he was writing those when he was still alive before that point. Uh, and that came out of his experiences in the 1830s and 40s. So you have essentially a situation in America today that was just like it was before the war. And why? Why do we have all these problems? This is the real question. Why do we keep having all of these issues? Supreme Court does this. You need to ignore the Supreme Court, the Constitution, etc. Because we have two different constitutions working at all times. We have the unwritten Constitution, which is the incorrect Constitution. And we have the written Constitution, which is the one we should be following. But of course, if we had that Constitution in place, the United States government wouldn't do most of what it does. So this is the issue. This is what Calhoun was talking about. And of course, he was saying what we need to do is have some teeth in the 10th Amendment, because if we don't have any teeth in the 10th Amendment, we'll keep having all of these issues. Now, let's talk about the Supreme Court. I'm actually going to focus on a piece that Jonathan Turley wrote, because after the Supreme Court issued its most recent decision on affirmative action, the left went ballistic. They went ballistic because in their mind, this is the only way that uh, we can have a diverse college environment. And that's really what it was about. But we're going to see this now, I think, extended out to other areas. Is affirmative action legal in, in any of these other areas? This was a very narrow ruling. It was focused primarily on colleges, universities, and admission requirements. And it does still give colleges and universities wiggle room. We've seen that with Harder. They issued a statement saying that, of course, you can talk about how if race was... So they did away with affirmative action in California. And I, what, what's interesting to me is how so many people on the right are just willing to declare defeat. All right. There's a major victory by the U.S. Supreme Court declaring affirmative action on the basis of race illegal for college admissions, but so much of the right is ready to declare defeat, saying, oh, it's useless. The various educational bureaucracies will just find a way around it. And they will find ways around it, but it's still a significant ruling. In California, they forbade the use of affirmative action by race, and it has significantly reduced the number of low-achieving blacks and Latinos getting admittance to our top universities, public universities in California. Now, have the educational bureaucracies at UCLA and Berkeley found partial ways around this ban? Yes, partially, but we don't have nearly as many affirmative action by race students in the California public university system now as we would have without that uh, referendum declaring affirmative action by race illegal. And Affirmative action, like much of the rest of the civil rights agenda, it's, it's interesting how it's become progressively less popular as the years have gone by. So even minority groups, by and large, do not care for affirmative action. Support for affirmative action is largely limited to an elite. Like regular people don't like it. And when the Supreme Court rules against it, when California rules against it in a referendum, that has a significant effect on the real world. But <laughs> I notice with many conservatives, they're just so quick to say, oh, it's hopeless. Right? The, those darn elites, they're just so smart. They're going to figure out you know, a way around this. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to you know, overcome those gosh darn elites. Right? They, they've absolutely got us licked. What can, what can we possibly do?
And another way that uh, many on the right are very quick to declare despair is saying, oh, it's just inevitable that we're going to be swamped by people from other regions of the world who are hostile to the historic American nation. And this is just baked into the demographics. There's nothing we can do about it. America's finished. America's over. Well, not true, right? This, this thinking is based on a Census Bureau error that leads Democrats and Republicans to assume that Democrats are simply on the right side of inexorable demographic trends. And yet, you see Republican massive successes in 2010, 2014, 2016. And even in 2020, Republicans did pretty well. In 2022, Republicans got the majority of the vote. So this whole majority-minority narrative is wrong, says sociologist Richard Alba, referring to the idea that non-white Americans will outnumber whites by 2050. So Richard Alber published a book, The Great Demographic Illusion. So he notes that how many, quote-unquote, non-whites are assimilating into the American mainstream, just as many white ethnic groups did before them, and government statistics fail to account for this complex reality. So what the heck is going on here? So Richard Alber accepted these U.S. Census Bureau statistics and predictions at first, but Back in about 2016, he spotted a key error in how the Census Bureau classifies people by race and ethnicity. So the data understating the degree to which people are coming from mixed family backgrounds, often overwhelmingly white, but because they indicate on a Census Bureau form that they are part black or part Asian or part Latino, they are counted by the U.S. Census Bureau as 100% black, 100% Asian, 100% Latino, even if they may be majority white. So the Office of Management and Budget has decided, who carries out the U.S. Census, decided that Americans who designate themselves as white and something else on the census form are classified as non-white. So if I put in my census form that I was white and Chinese, right, I would be designated 100% as Asian. So if you're changing white to non-white, right, that bollocks up the statistics. Right? Plenty of Americans of mixed Asian and white descent will have more contact with white relatives than with Asian ones because there are far more whites in America than Asians. So 62% of Asian whites feel very accepted by whites compared with 47% say they feel the same thing from Asians. When they marry, 72% of Asian white women and 64% of Asian white men take white spouses. Yet the government counts them and their progeny as non-white. So... People who are willing to stake their lives, their activism, their career, their predictions, their understanding of reality, they're on statistics that are distorted and that they don't really understand how they are formulated. Let me get a little bit more here from Brian McClanahan. Uh, a block or some type of obstacle in your time as a young person and how, how you overcame that to achieve success. So in other words, they can just write that in their essay. And of course, that would still be part of their college admissions. And other schools have already been doing this. So it hasn't eliminated race entirely from a decision concerning college enrollment or admission. But it has made it to where you can't just say, all right, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to have you know, somebody of this group or that group. Or we're going to use race as a deciding factor. Now, quotas have supposedly been illegal for years. In fact, in the Nixon administration, this was brought up. You know, we're going to have quotas when it comes to hiring or business practices or education. Those have been illegal for years. Now, we also know in many states, they've tried to restrict affirmative action, make it to where it's illegal in college admissions. But... I think you're going to see more states go out and try to do this now, and at least eliminate it as a part of a process for admissions. Um, a colleague of mine asked me if I was still skeptical about 
the uh, the sweeping decisions of the Supreme Court, or at least it was going to do what it said it was going to do. I had said from the beginning that I'm not so certain this court's going to do much. I was a little surprised by the Dobbs decision. These were kind of softballs in some ways, and I said they're kind of trimming around the edges because if you look at what's happening, they're still relying on a 14th Amendment interpretation of the Constitution. They're still relying on that second Constitution now, the, the Constitution that was uh, created in 1868 to, in, to uh, come up with these decisions. And until they get rid of that, you haven't really done has 40 run out of Modafinil. No way, bro. I got like six months supply of Modafinil. And I've had two cups of coffee this morning. So that's very rare for me. So I'm all fired up to do this live stream. I think I've had one morning in the past six weeks that I can remember where I was able to sleep in past uh, 5 a.m. So I can remember one one morning where I woke up at uh, 5, 10 a.m., pretty much every other morning, I am wide awake by 3 a.m. So I'm uh, ready to go, ready to rock and roll. Now, another thing I notice in, in discourse, how conservatives love to talk about how America is a republic and Democrats love to talk about how the United States of America is a democracy. In reality, in the real world, there's very little functional real world difference between living in a republic and living in a democracy so i put in republic versus democracy into google the first result is from a firefighter who posts a republic is a representative form of government that is ruled according to a charter or a constitution democracy is a government that's ruled according to the will of the majority yes but there are no functioning democracies according to this definition uh, the main difference between a republic and a democracy is that the Constitution limits power in a republic, often to protect the individual's rights against the desires of the majority. And yet any right you believe you have can be taken away in a state of emergency or by a decision of five U.S. Supreme Court justices. So another website, Diffen, D-I-F-F-E-N.com. Key difference between a democracy and a republic lies in the limits placed on government by the law. Both forms of government use a representational system. Citizens vote to elect politicians to represent their interests and to form a government. In a republic, a constitution protects certain inalienable rights that supposedly cannot be taken away by the government. But uh, this is more in theory than in fact. So most modern nations are democratic republics with a constitution. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that most uh, modern nations are democratic republics. There are no pure democracies in the world today. So democracy and republic are frequently used to mean the same thing, a government in which the people vote for their leaders. But uh, yeah, Republicans love to talk about we're a republic, not a democracy. Not much functional difference. Right? So a republic is a government of laws, not of men, driving its authority not by a divine right of inheritance or strength of arms, but by reason and by adherence to the mechanisms of the Constitution. Yeah, that's in theory... In practice, people, people in functioning democracies vote for their leaders, and then their leaders and leaders in the judicial system, such as the Supreme Court, then effectively decide what rights we get to enjoy. Done anything substantial to change the way we're going to we're going to interpret the Constitution, the way we're going to look at the Constitution. That faulty understanding of the Fourteenth Amendment still is working in both directions. So we've got to get rid of that. So in my mind, they're still kind of trimming around the edges. He said they're not; they're really doing things fundamental. And I would say that this is, uh, of course, a a court that's been more active uh, in, than recent decades. But we know that, as he also pointed out, that other courts have been much more active. This court is not even as active as the Rehnquist Court, the Berger Court, or the Warren Court. I mean, those courts were much more active than this court. But, of course, they were doing things that the left liked. Now, at the top of the show, I talked about how the left has a new foil, a new enemy. 
And it's not the court, even though they are critical of the court. And they're going to they're going to run on this, right? This is going to be a big campaign issue moving into 2024. We've got to do something about the court. Well, we have a new foil, though, and it's actually Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy. You see, because everything that happens now is because of Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy. I don't care if you're on the left or the right. This is how stupid American politics are. We have our American Hitler, and it's Jefferson Davis. For a long time, it was John C. Calhoun. Now we're going to Jefferson Davis, the Confederacy. I mean, everything that happens, it doesn't matter again. If you're on the left or the right, it's because of Jefferson Davis. Now, how do I, how do I say that? Well, you look at Victor Davis Hanson. Okay, so a lot of uh, conservatives like uh, Dennis Prager love to boast about how America, unlike other nations, right, this is, America is an idea, right? It's a place that where anyone can come and belong regardless of background. Unlike other nations that are based on shared heritage, shared history, shared race and religious ties, right? The United States is an idea. Now, there's a reason most countries are not multi-ethnic countries, right? And why most of those that have tried to become multi-ethnic countries have failed. This is from Christopher Cordwell's great book, The Age of Entitlement, where a shared heritage is absent or unrecognized as it is in the contemporary United States. All the eggs of national cohesion are placed in the basket of the Constitution, which is not a strong enough basket to maintain social cohesion. And with the dawn of the civil rights era, the U.S. Constitution, the very thing that supposedly made it possible for an ethnically varied nation to live together, not just came under stress, but was replaced by a new constitution, right? The, the civil rights constitution. So to whatever extent the United States today is a free country, and I, I'm fine with that, is a very different sense of freedom than it was between the administration of George Washington and that of John F. Kennedy. Right, so Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, 1954 Supreme Court ruling, unanimous Supreme Court decision that ordered the desegregation of all of America's schools. It's not just a landmark decision, but it was an unusual one. It was brief to the point of curtness, shorn of footnotes and case references. Each of its two parts ran about the length of a newspaper column. It was less a judicial argument than a judicial order. It was essentially an emotional expression, just like the Oberfell decision that uh, made gay marriage the rule of the land, right? You can't find a strong case for legislating same-sex marriage in the U.S. Constitution. But uh, justices had to make up a ruling, and they couldn't find precedent, so they just emoted. So with Brown versus the Board of Education, U.S. Supreme Court justices ignored, ignored the subject to which they devoted most of their deliberations, whether the 14th Amendment, right, drafted in the wake of the Civil War to guarantee equal protection of the law, was intended to permit segregated schools. Instead, they asked whether the doctrine of separate but equal used to justify school segregation was possible in practice. Of course, it is possible in practice. So the justices believed it was possible. And they did note findings that uh, black and white schools had been equalized. They nonetheless repudiated the separate but equal doctrine for primary schools on the grounds that because of intangible considerations, right, considerations that did not actually exist in reality, but that they imagined existed, and qualities which are incapable of objective measurement. Okay, qualities which are incapable of objective measurement are not a sound basis for revoking the United States Constitution and replacing it with a new civil rights constitution. And the most ardent opponents of segregation were troubled by this U.S. Supreme Court decision to essentially rewrite the U.S. Constitution on the authority of vague pronouncement about the way things are usually interpreted. So one Harvard Law professor described Brown as an opinion which is often read with less fidelity by those who praise it than by those by whom it is condemned, right? Which is the most abstruse way of saying that uh, 
the Supreme Court decision was quite wrongly decided. So Brown would have been impossible under any faithful reading of what the drafters of the 14th Amendment had meant by equality, just like uh, Roe v. Wade right, was decided on the basis of supposedly a constitutional right to privacy, but this constitutional right to privacy underpinning Roe v. Wade has not been found in any other subsequent important Supreme Court decisions. All right? It was just made up to fit the case of Roe v. Wade. So the heart of the matter with segregation was not equality, but the conflicts it created with the First Amendment right of freedom of association. And these conflicts are not easily solved. We have diminished freedom of association and freedom of private property to enact this vast you know, civil rights industrial complex. So if freedom of association is denied by segregation, integration forces an association upon those for whom it is unpleasant or repugnant. So we have a situation where the state must choose between denying the association to those who wish it and imposing it on those who would avoid it, all on the basis of these made-up principles that supposedly the Constitution demands. So in constitutional terms, the Brown versus Board of Education decision was arbitrary and open-ended. It essentially gave the U.S. government the authority to put all sorts of public bodies under surveillance for racism. The damage it aimed to amend consisted of intangible considerations. So there's no limit to this government surveillance, and that's the civil rights industrial complex that we live under today. Once the Civil Rights Act was introduced into the private sector, this assumption that all separation was prima facie evidence of inequality and racism, this battle against desegregation implied a revocation of the old freedom of association. So within a decade of Brown versus Board of Education philosopher Leo Strauss was warning that attempts to root out discrimination could backfire. He points out the difficulties under which minorities operate. A liberal society stands or fall by the distinction between the political and society, by the distinction between the public and the private. And now we have the civil rights industrial complex regulating the most private of interactions. So pro Prohibiting every type of discrimination essentially means the abolition of privacy, right? You want to fight for privacy, you're concerned about privacy, then you should be appalled by civil rights legislation, right? It is meant the destruction of liberal society. It's meant the destruction of privacy. It's meant the destruction of freedom of association. It's meant this considerable diminishment of the right to private property, so one University of Chicago First Amendment scholar tried to disguise his own misgivings about this ruling as praise. So he says one of the most distinctive features of the Black Revolution has been its military assault on the Constitution via the strategy of systematic litigation. Right? We have destroyed the old Constitution via this strategy of systematic litigation. Right? There's, there's no waiting for the random and mysterious processes by which Controversies are finally brought to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now there is a marshalling of cases, a creation of cases, a timing of litigation, a force-feeding of legal growth. Right? You could say this is a brilliant use of democratic legal processes. Its successes are spectacular. But uh, it's also a strategy to trap democracy in its own decencies. So... The civil rights era has been a constitutional catastrophe. It's been a military assault on the Constitution. Like, how could you say that as praise? Now, what upstanding political actor takes advantage of another's decencies to entrap him? But that is what happened. So many U.S. Supreme Court cases that have 
paved the way for the civil rights industrial complex have not arisen naturally out of our country's ordinary social frictions, but they are created by interested activist parties. So the whole tradition of judicial review seems to lose its legitimacy. So we have the staging of court cases, and that's become a standard strategy for activist litigators in a way that until the 1960s was considered judicial corruption. So take the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. They not only stage events, they script them. It handpicks their plaintiffs, such as Rosa Parks. So we're taught in Black History Month that Rosa Parks was some tired seamstress who just needed to rest her weary legs in the white section of a Montgomery, Alabama city bus. And it was just all a spontaneous protest, but it was considerably more than that. So five months before the Montgomery bus boycott began, she attended a school in training social agitators, right? She was an organizer of considerable sophistication, one of the intellectual leaders of the Montgomery NAACP. And you look at the American right, so to speak, particularly the West Coast Rousians, the Claremont people, Everything bad is because of the South, Jefferson Davis, John C. Calhoun, the Confederacy, whatever it is. It's, that's the bad guys. And those were all Democrats. This is Mark Levin. Those were all Democrats, you see. All these guys, all this Jefferson Davis, all Democrats. The Republicans were always the good guys. Then if you're on the left, then if you're on the left, well, the GOP is just a party of neo-Confederates, right? It's just Jefferson Davis. We're just resurrecting Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy. And I talked about that last week. There's two pieces. One saying the same thing. So when both agree on this, and both have come up with the position that the bad guys are the same thing, and the good guys, Abraham Lincoln, we're doomed. This is where I'm pointed out with Miles Smith and his piece that we need to keep Lincolnian nationalism around. This is what we have now. It's not doing anything but creating more and more division. Why? Because we're, we have a fundamental misunderstanding about what the United States was and is. If you have a Lincolnian nationalism, a Lincolnian America, you get what we have. You get exactly what we have today in American politics. And it's awful. A real American, a real understanding of the American tradition would include a heavy dose of federalism where the states would do this anyway. The Dobbs decision simply returned the issue to the states where it belonged. And we've seen states make up their own mind on these things now. And generally, the whole thing is quieted down. Why? Because in many states, everything stayed the same. And the states have then reflected the political culture of the people in those states. That's how things have worked. And you know what? I don't hear a whole lot of rumbling about this anymore. It's gone. The issue is gone. Now, I know on the left, they're going to try to say we need to have some type of legislation, uh, you know, codifying Roe v. Wade at a national level. And the same thing on the right. They've, they've, people have talked about that. But that was defeated. Republicans could never get that through. The left might try, but I think it would also be knocked down there as well. I think that they wouldn't have enough. The, the, the House and the Senate are going to be too closely divided right now for this. But regardless, uh, that's gone. Now, if some of these, if we get Democrats in the executive office for the next 12 years and some of these Supreme Court justices retire or die and they start swinging the court back the other way, you'll see a challenge. Somebody will challenge uh, a state that uh, you know has restrictive abortion requirements and it'll go to the Supreme Court again. And maybe they'll overturn Dobbs. Maybe they'll say, no, no, no. There's a so this is the, the sad thing about all of this. The 14th Amendment is the issue. And until we can wrestle with that and come up with a way to get rid of that, we're going to be in this nonstop, uh, you know, this, this perpetual angst over the Supreme Court doing X, Y, and Z. It's been a nightmare. This, this is the nightmare that, that the Jeffersonians worried about with the Supreme Court. It's the nightmare that Calhoun worried about. So let me get into this Jonathan Turley piece because he says some things here that are rather interesting. Uh, the title is Biden's Normal. The president's constitutional takes are becoming more unhinged from history. Well, I agree. I mean, they've never really been hinged in history at all. <laughs> they've never been grounded in history at all. None of it has. So he says, the decision of the Supreme Court to end the use of race in college admissions was not unexpected. Indeed, the rulings in cases involving Harvard and the University of North Carolina ended decades of muddled five to four decisions. Yet President Joe Biden seemed to go into full attack mode and actually claimed that the court gutted the constitutional guarantee that all men and women are created equal. Declaring that this court was not normal, Biden further insisted that these admissions decisions of the Dobbs abortion decision reverse the gains we fought a war over in 1860 secure. So again, see, 
People ask why the war is still important. Because we're still fighting the war. The, the war is ongoing. Because we're in a third reconstruction. And people are open about it, right? This is Eric Foner's point about the Second American Revolution. And you have the convenient foil. Everything bad is the Confederacy. This, I mean, look, you, Biden... So when I listen to liberals, centrists, conventional conservatives, they often talk about increasing rights as though it just moves in one direction. But whatever you increase rights for one group, you are taking away rights for another group. So adding civil rights for all Americans significantly reduced rights to freedom of association and freedom of use of your private property for the majority. And Christopher Cordwell makes this point in his excellent book, The Age of Entitlement, right? Rights cannot simply be added to a social contract without changing it. To establish new liberties is always to extinguish other liberties. So back in 1963, long before the passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act, those who were skeptical of civil rights legislation hinted that you know some hypothetical old widow who rented out a home, a room in her house, right, might be you know, bearing the brunt of federal surveillance and law enforcement if she's too picky about who she accepts as a border. Now, civil rights legislation's backers treated the question as ridiculous, but the skeptics of civil rights were absolutely true. And people who are pushing civil rights eventually admitted that real freedom requires many changes in the nation's political and social philosophy and institutions. We must destroy the notion that Mrs. Murphy's property rights the right to humiliate me because of the color of my skin. So a border or a prospective customer is free to reject a landlord or a business on the basis of anything, including race and religion, but operators of a you know, rental property or operators of a business are no longer free to reject prospective customers for any reason. So the sanctity of private property has come to take second place to the sanctity of the human personality. That's how the pro-civil rights people put it. So after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, property simply does not enjoy the same constitutional protection it had before, nor does freedom of association. So Florida's segregationist governor of the 1960s, Ferris Bryan, described this brilliantly. He says, we would all agree that the traveler is and should be free not to buy. He can pass a hotel because he does not like the town, because he does not like the color, he does not like the name, he can stop and go in, and when he sees the owner, he can decide he doesn't like him because he doesn't like his mustache or his accent or his prices or his race or his other customers. He can turn around and he can walk out for any reason or no reason at all. Why not? He's a free man. Well, so too should the owner of a property be free. If the traveler is free not to buy because he doesn't like the owner's mustache, accent, prices, race, other customers, or for any reason, the owner of the property ought to have the same freedom. That's simple justice. So what exactly did the majority population think that they were getting with civil rights? Right? The majority population in America thought that they were being generous. But for black Americans, they essentially saw civil rights legislation as blacks, as white people pleading guilty in the court of history of being just perfidious and racist and awful. And so too, when the majority population talks about extending reparations to black Americans, that's not going to increase comity, goodwill between blacks and whites, or just give large numbers of black Americans even more reason to believe that you know, whites are pleading guilty and that they deserve to be despoiled.
So what's going on in our big cities? We're having a massive upsurge in violence over the past couple of years. Erupting out of Philadelphia, claiming the lives of five people and injuring two children. But it's just the latest violence plaguing cities this July 4th weekend. We'll have a live report on that next. Okay, I'll keep an eye here on Fox. If anything interesting comes up. Let me catch my breath, please. Victor Davis Hanson could have said this stuff. Well, what we're doing now is fighting a war over uh, what we fought a war of in 1860. Mark Levin, what we're doing is fighting a war. We fought a war over this in 1860. This is how stupid all this stuff is. When you have the same common hero and your same foil, doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right, is the Confederacy. Well, what does that say? There's no difference between the two. Just in degrees. In an interview with MSNBC's Deadline, White House, President Biden accused the court of ignoring, quote, what the Constitution says. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women are created equal and died by the Creator. Now, that's funny. That's really funny. So that's what the Constitution says. We hold these truths to be something that all men and women... Now, see, first of all, that comes from the Declaration, but there's no women in the Declaration either. What Biden has done here is conveniently list the proposition nation myth. Well, who else does this? The West Coast Straussians, the Mark Levins, they all do it. The proposition nation myth is at the core of what's going on with America in terms of how we problematically view American government. You see, for one group, when we ended slavery and uh, we had Plessy v. Ferguson, we stopped there. Right. We're, we undid, undid Plessy v. Ferguson, excuse me. When we, when we had Brown v. Board of Education, undid Plessy v. Ferguson. We stopped there. That's it. The revolution's complete. We had the war. Uh, that ended slavery. And then we did our job with Brown v. Board of Education. Stop. Full stop. To the left, that's just part of it. That's That didn't do enough. Okay, this guy doesn't go far back enough. By accepting Brown versus the Board of Education, he completely overturned the American Constitution. So, no, we shouldn't accept Brown versus the Board of Education. People should have the right to freedom of association. There's become this really popular idea over the past uh, 50 years that America is primarily an idea. And that is not how America was founded. It was founded as the product of uh, people fleeing the United Kingdom to set up a nation created for their own benefit and the benefit of their progeny. So about 80, 85% of America's white population, the time of the Revolutionary War, towards the end of the 18th century, came from the United Kingdom. So it was kind of, the United States was created as an extension of the freedom of the rights of Englishmen uh, shifted westward into the new world. So to me, America is not primarily an idea. It's where I live. America is exceptional to me because this is where I live, to quote Steve Saylor. It's a nation state founded by people who formed it in their own interests and in the interests of their progeny. America is not primarily a product of the Constitution, just like the Jewish people are not primarily a product of the Torah. Right? The Constitution is primarily the product of a particular people operating under selection pressure in a particular environment. So even if you subscribe to the traditional notion that God gave every word of the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai about 3,200 years ago, right, that did not create the Jewish people as we know it. Because if God had given every letter of the Torah to another people, the Torah tradition and the nation associated with that would have developed very differently from the one that we have. Like Jews brought their own proclivities, their own gifts to God's Torah, just as Africans and the Japanese and Norwegians have brought their own proclivities and their own gifts to God's Christianity, if you believe that Christianity came from God. And they have transformed Christianity from the version that developed in the Middle East nearly 2,000 years ago. So what counts as Christianity in Africa today is completely different from Christianity as it's practiced in England or Australia or Iceland or Peru or Mexico. 
And if you want to just take a naturalistic understanding, religion emerges out of culture, and culture emerges out of the interaction between genes and environment operating under Darwinian selection pressure. So the West Coast Straussians are saying, well, we, we finished it. We completed this drive from the proposition nation. We, 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 we solved the problem. No, you didn't. Left say, no, you didn't. You didn't go far enough. Well, yes, we did. No, we didn't. So see, this is the issue. We've got the, we've got the Girondins and the Sans-Culotte, right? I mean, we, we've got to that point in this American French Revolution. The West Coast Straussians are uh, the Dantonists, right? They're just saying we've, the revolution's gotten far enough. And then, then the, the Committee of Public Safety is saying, off with your head suspect and the victims. Conservatives. The gunmen meantime left behind. opening fire that would be the over foil. several that would be city Jefferson blocks. Davis and John C. Calhoun. They're, they're left behind. You see. And it wasn't about race with these people. That's a convenient thing. But in reality, what, what Calhoun and Davis and the South, and of course, there are many of these people in the North too. In fact, the real key to understanding the war is the Northern Democrats. All these conservatives in the United States in the 1860s were pointing out that what we're going to get is this nonsense if we keep this Lincolnian process going. That's what we're fighting against. We're fighting to keep the Federal Republic. We're fighting against centralization, extreme nationalization, all of that. That's what we're fighting against. So Rustin Shackelford says in the chat, even if I, what I'm, I'm saying is true, what is going to change the thoughts of the elites? Well, let's take the thoughts of the elites in Germany. Right? Prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the thoughts of the elites in Germany were overwhelmingly pacifist. <laughs> pacifist. <laughs> That's a combination of fascism and pacifism. Uh, They're overwhelmingly pacifist and very pro-green, pro-environmentalist. Then once Russia invades Ukraine, the Greens, who were the most left-wing major party in Germany, they became the most militarist party in Germany. They were willing to trash all sorts of environmental protections to pursue more energy independence for Germany and for Germany to take a leading role in fighting back against Russia in Ukraine. So why did elite thinking change in Germany? Well, the situation changed. So too in the United States. When the situation changes, elite thinking will change. So that which cannot continue will not. Right? So we're on an unsustainable path in many ways, such as in our rollback of policing and sentencing of bad guys. Right? Due to the surge in crime, many you know, people on the left are unhappy with the massive surge in crime. And so there is going to be blowback towards more law enforcement and towards longer prison sentences as situations change, so too elite thinking will change, just as we witnessed in Germany. Question from the chat, 40, did you ever consider studying law when you were young? Not really. I guess a little bit when I was age 11, but uh, from about age 17 or 18 on, I wanted to study economics when I got to university. So Charlie says, this is actually a reference to the Declaration of Independence, but it was the substance of the point that was so baffling. Interlocutor says Germany is completely subordinate to the U.S. Yes, that is true, but it's also true that German elites changed their thinking. So how did German elites so radically change their thinking in the course of a month, right? In the course of the first month of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they changed their thinking because the situation changed. So too, American elites will change their thinking when the situation changes, when, say, crime rates become unbearable to them or America is in much greater peril. So the more peril the United States is in, particularly from uh, outside forces, the more people will tend towards an anti-outgroup attitude, which will tend to redound to the benefit of Republicans. 
the more safe, the more secure Americans feel, the more likely they will be to vote for the Party of Social Welfare, the Democrats. So whoever wins the election in 2024, that will largely depend upon the situation. If Americans' primary concerns are threats from outgroups, then Republicans should be in a good position to win. If Americans' primary concern is increasing social welfare spending, then Democrats will be a better place to win. The Constitution says. Now, again, Biden confused. How can we expect these idiots on Twitter and Facebook or wherever social media to really know? This is like Hitler built the Berlin Wall. The Constitution says this. I mean, this is how stupid these people really are. But how can we expect anyone to know when the president of the United States just bumbles on about this kind of stuff? And uh, Luke Kraft says the Germans still did not change their energy policy. They're still anti-nuclear nutcases. Well, they did change their energy policy in, in many ways. They shifted towards much more use of uh, natural gas. Uh, Chad says Germans are still occupied by the U.S. military, so that helped change their elites' minds. Well, Germany and, and Europe right, have not been willing to pay the price for developing their own military independence. Right, They have taken the bargain of essentially outsourcing their military protection needs to the United States so that they could afford massive amounts of social welfare spending. And, of course, what he did here was conveniently insert the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments into the Declaration. So he's, he's confused the Constitution, the Declaration, and the Seneca Falls Convention. Three different historical documents, all confused now. We've got this hybrid thing that's working now, and Biden's an idiot. And Rustin Shackelford says there's something unique to the U.S. Elites will easily isolate themselves from situations that would change minds. Uh, really? So think about how support for the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 and for Iraq in 2003 was overwhelming. Right? That was because of change of situation after 9-11, so that very few people were willing to stand up and oppose these invasions, even though they proved to be absolutely disastrous for the United States. So elite opinion did change. Right? Prior to 9-11, there was much more skepticism about nation building and getting more deeply involved in the Middle East. After 9-11, that became a foreign policy establishment consensus, became a media elite consensus. It became a talking heads consensus that, yeah, going into Afghanistan and Iraq is the right thing to do. It was absolutely wrong, but you did see a massive change in elite consensus. So elites still want to lead. Elites still want to have influence. They don't want to seem out of touch. And as the situation changed in America after 9-11, elite opinions changed. For all this stuff, but the left believes this stuff too. I, I guarantee you, if you polled a bunch of these leftist dopes walking around who vote and have children, that uh, they would uh, they would say that Biden actually cited the, the Declaration. I wrote these truths to be said, all men and women. There's nothing in there about that, but they would maybe think that. So Charlie says, in barring the use of race and admissions, the court believed that it was protecting that bearing guarantee. The race, what the court viewed as a glaring anomaly in, this, in its cases, in the treatment of racial discrimination in education as opposed to employment. It was a capstone opinion of for Chief Justice John Roberts, who in 2017 declared the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discrimination on the basis of race. In 2006, Roberts added, it is a sort of business that's divvying up, us up by race. So this was, I mean, Charlie's pointing out, this is a long time coming. Right? This was going to happen. They were going to go and, and overturn this. They were going to so what did uh, white people think they were getting when they supported massive civil rights legislation? What about Serbia and Bosnia, different side of the same coin? Well, the United States was able to in intervene in the Serbia-Bosnia conflict without losing a single American. Uh, that was a time in the mid-1990s when the United States was the, the superpower in the world. So now that there are two other superpowers aside from the United States, Russia and China, 
the U.S. has to be much more selective about its use of, of power. But when you're the sole superpower, you can afford you know, much more room for doing dumb things and intervening in things where there's no vital national security interests. So much of the reason the United States did so many stupid things between 1995 and, say, 2010 is because we were the, the world's uh, sole superpower. But now we live in a more dangerous world. American power is not as dominant as it was during that time period. Right, let's look at the chat. You talk as if this was a choice on the part of European elites. It was the outcome of World War II when Europe was destroyed, divided, and occupied by the U.S. and the Soviets. So according to Interlocutor 1067, Europeans are just an occupied power. They have no agency that uh, if the United States told the prime minister of Germany to go suck off a dog, he would go suck off a dog because, hey, an American told him to do so. And uh, if any American comes along and tells a European to go suck off a dog, the uh, European is absolutely helpless. He must go out and suck off dogs because that's what the American said, that Europeans are just you know, absolutely hopeless. They have no agency. I'm not sure why so many people on the right are just so eager to believe in their lack of agency and that if you know, some American or some Jew comes along and tells them something, they're absolutely hopeless in the face of that instruction. Uh, yes, the German prime minister would. Germans are self-hating cowards. I don't believe they are. They have created a fantastic economy that is now paying a huge price for the war in Ukraine. But uh, Germany's you know, created an economically dominant state over the past 70 years. Now they're facing some very grim demographics. They've you know, always lived in a very dangerous part of the world. Germany does not have naturally defensible borders. I think Germany, by and large, has done pretty much the best it could in a very difficult uh, situation. So what did uh, white people think they were getting with uh, civil rights, right? I don't think they suspected they'd see the vast increase in government oversight that's become the sine qua non of civil rights. So if you look at the congressional debate leading to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it's just filled with outright mockery of those who warned that Hitherto, unimaginable federal government infringement is going to take place, not just the regulation of Mrs. Murphy's rooming house, but also mandatory school busing, public and private hiring quotas, and immigration quotas. So you had this Florida Democratic senator who was worried that attempts to equalize school enrollment might lead to busing. His Pennsylvania Republican colleague just scoffed at him. Does the senator not agree that there is nothing whatever in the bill which relates to school busing? But by the 1970s, there was race-based school busing nationwide, not just in southern states. So all sorts of constitutionalist and libertarian fears, fears that were laughed at, chuckled at, poo-pooed by pro-civil rights legislators all came to pass. Those who opposed civil rights legislation have proved far wiser about its consequences than those who sponsored such legislation. And overturn the use of race in college admissions, at least overtly right now you can do it covertly you can do it with an essay but overtly you can't do it anymore the court was enforcing what it saw as the, as the self-evident guarantee referenced in the declaration and later protected in the 14th amendment you see this is where i told my colleagues they're trimming around the edges they haven't uh, substantially excuse me raked out what needs to be raked out and gutted in the interpretation so it's still the 14th amendment it's still the declaration we're still going on the proposition nation we're just basing all of these things on all these judges are west coast Straussians. when you start from that position you open the door to the left to undo the position 
what needed to happen, and what Thomas points out in his, uh, his, his concurring opinion in Dobbs, was that, wait a second here, if we're going to say this about Roe v. Wade, what about all these other things that uses the 14th Amendment? We can't do that. The court reaffirmed that all men and women are created equal and will be treated equally in both education and employment. So it reaffirms the proposition nation. I mean, you could say that that's, but this is what the left is saying the goal is too. They would say affirmative action is treating everyone equal because these people have disadvantages and that these people have privileges. And so those privileges, this is not equality. It's all about this term equality. This is Harry Jaffa. This is the Harry Jaffa nightmare. Equality is conservative. It's not. They shouldn't have, they shouldn't have argued it in this direction. They should have said, well, this is not really a federal issue at all. It's not a 14th Amendment issue. And you know what? The states can decide to do this however they would like. That would have been it. But no, they double down on the 14th Amendment in the proposition nation myth nightmare. So people who supported civil rights and white people in general who supported civil rights, they thought that uh, black Americans would respond with nothing but gratitude. They thought, oh, blacks, they just want to be nothing more than to be full Americans with the rights of all Americans. But that's not how it turned out. Right? So giving blacks access to the rights of all Americans with civil rights legislation essentially meant redefining the rights that the majority of Americans are taken for granted, starting with freedom of association. So the United States was at its most united, most cohesive prior to civil rights legislation. But for black Americans, Americans' celebration of pluralism among Europeans had become a mockery. So pluralism, you would think, would mean a limitation of government power. You'd think it'd mean a free hand for private and voluntary organizations to develop their own patterns of worship, their own patterns of education, of social life, of neighborhood concentration and distinct economic activity. All of these enhance the life of these groups. But from the perspective of black Americans, all of these activities were exclusive and discriminatory. So all strongly identifying in-groups are going to have suspicions and hostility to outsiders. But uh, strong in-group identity gives you know, everyone in it a dignified place in the social order and its way of keeping the ruthless machinery of the market competition at bay. But the force of civil rights demands meant that... Uh, no sub-community, no in-group, because it either protects privileges or creates inequalities, has the right to exist. Right? Civil rights legislation was a war on freedom of association, which is a war on in-group identity. And now government set about destroying these sub-communities, all in the name of diversity. So the mainstream white assessment of the race problem in America in the 1960s you know, proved to be wrong. Whites knew a lot less about black people than black people did about white people. So blacks saw civil rights much more clearly than white people. You know, black people saw civil rights legislation meant that whites, as a group, had entered a guilty plea in the court of history and thus had to repudiate you know, their good name, the good name of America, and the good conscience of their constitutional republic. So did white people confer civil rights or did blacks wring them out of a reluctant political system? Probably it was both. But uh, civil rights largely came from a revamped understanding of human rights, which became a left-wing cause in the 1960s and 70s, given that uh, socialism and practical politics had you know, failed to achieve much of what the left-wing desired. So starting in the early 1960s, along with civil rights, you got this astonishing spike in crime in which blacks made up a disproportionate share of both perpetrators and victims. 
So you had the looting episodes in Memphis that preceded the assassination of Martin Luther King. You had deadly riots following that. You had the Los Angeles Rodney King riots, riots after O.J. Simpson's acquittal. So a little bit more here from Brian McClanahan. The president is not alone in such hyperbole. Figures like Whoopi Goldberg, who cares, actually asked whether the decision means that we are heading to no women in colleges soon. Who knows? Oh, yeah, that's where it's going, Whoopi. When women now make up, uh, you know, I think, 60% of people in college, college students, in some cases it's higher, in some places it's more. Yeah, that's where we're heading. So American majority thought that uh, civil rights would normalize American culture and cure the paranoia of the South's racial imagination, but instead wound up nationalizing Southerners' obsession with race and violence and crime. And Whoopi, when men are getting out of schools at high rates, college, they're going, they're going and doing something else. We actually do know, Turley says, an opinion rejecting the use of racial classification to determine who goes to college could not be read by anyone as endorsing the exclusion of other groups. Well, that's true. I mean, Turley's correct about this. This is about race, not about sex. But the fact is, uh, this is just complete a complete joke when someone like that says that. That's fear tactics. That's scaremongering. You know, it's, it's, it's saying things that are never going to happen. In fact, because women now control so much of higher education, this isn't going to happen. The truly baffling statement was Biden's claim of the Civil War. By leaving questions like abortion to the states, Biden claimed the court was reversing what was gained in that war. The criticism came in response to an opinion insisting that the place there's no place for racial discrimination in higher education. That would hardly seem an argument that would be embraced by the Confederacy. Oh, also, the North. <laughs> uh, because we know, even after the 14th Amendment was ratified, that Washington, D.C. had segregated public schools. So if it was aimed at ending segregation, that would have been news to the people that wrote the amendment, or at least ratified it, or put it into effect. In fact, Thad Stevens, as I've talked about on the show, Thad Stevens... Uh, saying that, well, I mean, this doesn't do anything that you think it's going to do. It's very narrow, the 14th Amendment. It simply it simply codifies the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was designed to ensure that former slaves had access to courts and could own property. And that was it. Very narrow interpret, a very narrow agenda for the 14th Amendment. But we've expanded that out way out. Right? And that's because people like Eric Foner and others, Randy Barnett, have said the 14th Amendment is expansive and Barnett's on the right. So when you've got Eric Foner and Randy Barnett in agreement, now you're arguing over the how far you should take it is the issue. So civil rights advocates, they, they never talked about the need for affirmative action, right? So when you got initially Civil Rights Act of 1964, that was then followed to the surprise of much of the country by the decision that legal equality was now insufficient, that uh, civil rights movement did not disband once its ostensible demands were met. It grew into a permanent powerful lobby, a political block seeking to remedy the problem of lack of jobs, lack of money, lack of housing. And the federal government made it now a central part of its mission to procure those things for blacks. And trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars was spent to try to secure these things for blacks. And the results were disappointing on almost every front because the United States people had never signed up for such a wide-ranging project. Now, it's not that Americans were opposed to black advancement. They were surprised that black advancement slowed after the passage of Civil Rights Act, right? So black Americans have been doing pretty well between the end of World War II and 1964. Now, after the passage of civil rights legislation, it slowed down. So Alan Bloom wrote in his 1987 bestseller, The Closing of the American Mind, that blacks proved as indigestible in university systems as they had been in earlier generations. So he was a professor at Cornell University in upstate New York, when black radicals bearing assault rifles rousted visiting parents out of bed on a 
Parents Weekend in 1969 demanded concessions from the university administration, which were granted. So Bloom left for the University of Toronto, and he saw that the indigestibility and the radicalism were two sides of the same coin because Cornell had admitted a large number of students who were manifestly unqualified and unprepared to do serious university work. Therefore, it faced an inevitable choice, fail most of them or pass them without their having learned anything. So black power, which hit the universities like a tidal wave, provided a third wave. So whites were looking for excuses for black underachievement. And they said, well, we, we must have, you know, imaginary systemic racism. And to overcome that, we now need affirmative action. And the Civil Rights Act allowed the government to compel affirmative action, to order the hiring of black people or any other equitable relief as the court deems appropriate. And it became nothing neutral about the new system, right? The, the judges who interpreted it explicitly repudiated race-neutral solutions. The American anti-racist regime excluded the most obvious race-blind solution to prejudice, such as neutral civil service, college admission, and hiring exams. So in Griggs versus Duke Power Company, Supreme Court ruled that uh, objective tests, if they disadvantaged blacks in any way, they could not be used. Good intent, absence of discriminatory intent, does not redeem employment procedures or testing mechanisms that are operated as built-in headwinds for minority groups. So if different groups have different gifts, then you can no longer use objective tests which reflect those differences. But of course, the Confederacy is, the, you know, this is the foil, right? This is the foil. But it also would be an argument that would hardly be embraced by the United States in 1865 or 1866 or 1867 or 1868. You don't need to foil the Confederacy. Just you want to say it's what Americans would have said in the 1860s overall. I mean, that would have been a better argument. President Biden has long taken liberties with our constitutional history. Many of us have repeatedly objected to claims that he has made in areas like the Second Amendment. One of the most respected lines, is, repeated lines, I'm sorry, not respected, but repeated lines, is that the Second Amendment was passed with the understanding that certain guns would be banned and adding you can't, couldn't buy a cannon. When in, fact the when, in fact, the Second Amendment passed. That happens to be utterly false, which is true. You could buy cannons. In fact, you could do whatever you wanted. You could buy whatever kind of firearm you wanted up until really the middle of the 20th century. You could go back to mail-order catalogs. You could buy howitzers. You could buy whatever you wanted. Uh, and, and even during the war, the 1860s, you had private citizens building naval vessels with cannons. Yet even after the Washington... So after civil rights legislation, government now has the ability to disrupt and steer private interactions interactions that have been considered private out of the sphere of government until now. So being a businessman or a landlord or a mem member of a college admission board, all right, your, your freedom was completely reduced, right? All sorts of matters of personal discretion were now matters for government intervention. So this was all to fight racism, but the government was now authorized to act against racism even if there's no evidence of any specific racist intent or racist behavior. So this is an opening to arbitrary government power. And once arbitrary power is conferred, it doesn't matter much what it's conferred for. And so you have growing skepticism about civil rights spreading widely in the American public. So Commentary Magazine commissioned Harvard political scientist James Q. Wilson, a native Californian, to write a guide to Reagan country in 1966 when Ronald Reagan was elected governor of California. And Wilson wrote, I do not intend here to write an apology for Reagan. Even if I thought like that, which I don't, I would never write it down anywhere my colleagues at Harvard might read it. Read it. <laughs> so intellectuals seldom wrote that honestly at the time. 
Half a decade later, his Harvard colleague Nathan Glazer wrote, Members of white ethnic groups say, We worked hard. We suffered from discrimination. We made it. Why don't they? And blacks retort, You came after us. We were nevertheless favored above us, given all the breaks, both when we were in slavery and ever since. It's a question that cannot be asked without arousing emotions so strong that one wonders just how far scholarship will be allowed to go in this issue. And one of the first casualties in the affirmative action regime was truth. Right At the simplest level, affirmative action meant discarding prevailing notions of neutrality to instead redistribute educational employment opportunities on the basis of race. So affirmative action requires the use of race as a socially significant category of perception representation, which is race consciousness, which isn't that uh, racism. So half a decade into the civil rights revolution, America had something it never before had at the federal level, an explicit system of racial preferences, which is not how the civil rights movement was sold. The Post declares Biden understanding of the Second Amendment to be false. He has continued to make the same false assertion over and over again. Yeah, of course, because if you say a lie long enough and you say it loud enough, people will, people will believe it. Now Biden has moved on to the Civil War, and his revisionism is about as subtle as Sherman's scorched march to the sea. The Civil War did not end federalism or states' rights. It denied the right of states to secede and ultimately fulfilled the pledge to equality first made in the Declaration of Independence. So there we have the proposition nation. This is kind of, you know, Miles Smith saying it didn't end federalism or states' rights. This is that Lincoln didn't end these things. Well, it did. Ultimately, it did. If you can't leave, you don't really have federalism. If you can't use the mechanism of the Constitution to protect a state, you don't really have federalism anymore. And it was just a matter of time. You're saying that it didn't end federalism when the Congress actually booted states out of the Union, created military districts, said you can't do X, Y, and Z? Of course it ended federalism. Oh, but, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. We had federalism after that. We did, until the court, using this expansive understanding of the 14th Amendment, which, by the way, came at the end of the war, that states really don't have any powers anymore, that we can overrule them. We have a federal negative of state laws. What do you think happened? And, of course, this proposition nation? That would have been news to the founding generation and how this would work. One can have good faith disagreements on whether the use of racial criteria is constitutional affirmative action or unconstitutional racial discrimination. However, Biden is belittling our prior struggles for equality with these sweeping and erroneous claims. In his interview, the president also insisted that one has to look at how it's ruled on a number of issues that are have been precedent for 50, 60 years sometimes, and that's what I meant by not normal. In reality, the court's decision on affirmative action in education has been muddled and conflicted for decades. In 1977, in regents of the University of California Vibaki, the court barred affirmative action in higher education. However, it allowed some consideration of race as part of holistic, a holistic admissions process. In the decades that followed, the court remained sharply divided. By 2003, the court was ready to issue the very decision that it issued this week. However, in Grutter v. Bollinger, then-Justice Sandra Day O'Connor supplied the fifth vote to uphold the use of race by the University of Michigan. Yet O'Connor wrote the court expects that 25 years from now. The okay, let's get uh, some Brian McClanahan on the constitutional crisis of 1776. That is the key to all of this. The American War for Independence was a constitutional revolt. And so let me get into that today, because I think this is the key to understanding the entire situation leading up to independence in 1776. And not just that, understanding the U.S. constitutional structure, because we've had two constitutions for the general government. One is the Articles of Confederation. The other is a constitution for the United States. And it is the constitution for the United States. And that's very important because that's what it says in the text. We often say it's the United States Constitution. No, it's the constitution for the United States. So we have these two constitutions for the general government. Of course, we have all these state constitutions, too. But the important thing to understand about the entire lead up to the war in the 10 years that preceded the war, and then the period after the war, and of course, putting the Declaration within context as well. And I'm going to talk about that in Thursday's podcast, and is the Declaration the key to understanding American government? I'm going to say yes and no, but I'm going to talk about a book that has to deal with that. So it's the key to understanding all of these things, this relationship between the British crown and the parliament and the colonies, is the key to understanding our entire federal structure in America. And there's a particular book that focuses on this issue, and it's entitled The Constitutional Origins of the American Revolution. It's written by the eminent historian Jack Green. 
He's a great colonial historian. And this book was actually published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, you can get it in paperback form. Um, it's not very old. I can't remember the exact publication date. Let me look on it here. It's, it was published in 2011, so not that long ago, about six years ago now. But it is an excellent book, and I think one of the best for really getting to the heart of what was going on here in 1776 and 1775 and in the year. Okay, there's a terrific new book out about the British origins of the American Constitution. Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness Review, America's British Creed. The Declaration of Independence marked America's rejection of England's hegemony, even while the new nation claimed ideals that were born in London. By Dominic Green. June 30, 2023, 11.41 a.m. Eastern Time. The youth of the American Republic is one of its oldest traditions. Its unique origins will always make it younger than any other nation. Yet the United States is also the world's oldest democracy. Britain in the time of George III was a liberal monarchy, but Britain democratized only by degrees in the 19th century. France was neither liberal nor democratic before the Revolution of 1789, and the French are now on their fifth republic. The American ideal of democratic self-governance looks ever more exceptional as it creaks toward its 250th birthday. Britain has a kind of old-fashioned pseudo-constitution, an accumulation of legal precedent and patchwork legislation, standing on unwritten assumptions and topped by a hollow crown. Americans were the first to spell out their social contract and specify the rights of individuals in plain English. But what did the magic words of the Declaration of Independence, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness mean to their authors? History is best written by the losers. In Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, Britain and the American Dream, Peter Moore, a historian who teaches at Oxford, shows how Britain exported its highest ideals to the Americans who rejected it. Mr. Moore breaks the American creed into three sections and examines each in context. Life explores how Benjamin Franklin embodied colonial intellectual potential in the 1740s and how he developed in London in the 1750s and 1760s. Liberty shows how the London rabbler Sir John Wilkes catalyzed the politics of liberty in the 1760s and why he resonated so loudly in the colonies. Happiness explains what the Enlightenment blend of action and emotion meant in England in the early 1770s and how Americans understood it on the cusp of their reinvention. Bible reading made colonial Americans perhaps the most literate population on the planet, but the life of the American mind was rooted in London. In 1740, Philadelphia was the colony's leading city, with a modern street grid and a handy location on the post road between Boston and Charleston, but its population of 10,000 was half that of Bristol in England. London's coffeehouse culture and periodicals such as Addison and Steele's short-lived Spectator were the templates for Benjamin Franklin's self-improving Junto Book Club, his Pennsylvania Gazette, and the almanac that he published under the pseudonym Richard Saunders. All American roads led to London and back. A London printer, William Strahan, supplied British news for the Pennsylvania Gazette. Strahan's protege, David Hall, emigrated to Philadelphia and worked in Franklin's print shop. In 1747, Franklin retired from trade, passed the shop to Hall, and commissioned his coming-out portrait as a gentleman. Franklin's scientific studies were not just an expression of practical polymathy. England's aristocracy of the mind were fascinated by science. When Franklin went to London in the 1750s, his electrical speculations were his calling card. 
Meanwhile in London, Strahan was printing Samuel Johnson's dictionary in installments. Johnson was writing his own one-man periodical, The Rambler. Franklin launched Johnson in America, publishing excerpts in Poor Richard's Almanac. Though Strahan linked the leading minds of American and British letters, Franklin and Johnson's division of perspectives anticipated the parting of imperial ways. Franklin presented himself carefully, playing the gentleman in Philadelphia for his London correspondent, just as he would later play the noble savage for Parisian admirers during the American Revolution. Johnson was a tick-ridden social bumbler. Franklin was irreligious but believed in progress. Johnson, a prayerful Anglican, thought that all change is of itself an evil. Mr. Moore describes their differences in the 1750s as liberalism against conservatism, but neither of those terms existed in those happy days before everyone had an ideology. The only word that made the king and his ministers sit up and think hard about America, Mr. Moore writes, was France, and that made the colonists want more of Britain than less of it. The Seven Years' War, 1756-1763, brought London and the colonists together, but the subsequent tax burden demonstrated how unequal the relationship was. Americans began to sour on the distant mother country, especially after George III and his ministers tried to ruin John Wilkes. Wilkes was a radical journalist, a defender of free speech, a well-connected Whig parliamentarian, and possibly the ugliest man in England. In 1763, George III demanded his trial for libeling the prime minister. Wilkes won his case, raised the ante by issuing a pornographic and blasphemous poem, and then skipped the country. He returned, won a seat in Parliament, and was imprisoned in 1768. The London mob cried Wilkes and Liberty, and rioted. The army, in a prequel to the Boston Massacre, fired into the crowd. The Wilkes saga helped convince the colonists that George III wanted absolute tyranny. The continuities with modern populism are obvious. In 2016, just after the British had voted to leave the European Union, I asked Nigel Farage, one of the architects of Brexit, to name his political hero. His answer was not Churchill or Thatcher but Wilkes. Likewise, Donald Trump's rhetoric of deep state conspiracies echoes that of the Sons of Liberty. No wonder the French see modern British and American politics as an Anglo-Saxon continuum, just as it was when Franklin first set sail for London. Liberty was the single word uniting freeborn Britons including those in the Americas. Liberty, like the British state, was patriotic and Protestant. Whigs invoked its origins in the Magna Carta, the Anglican Church, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and the Bill of Rights passed by Parliament in 1689. As Voltaire saw when he fled to London in the 1720s, liberty was simply the English way of life. Freeborn Britons knew liberty when they saw its enemy, the monarchical despotism and religious obscurantism of popery, exemplified by France. Londoners, Daniel Defoe wrote, were stout fellows that would spend their last drop of blood against popery, that do not know whether it be a man or horse. The same went in the colonies. The apprentices of Boston held an anti-Catholic revel on November 5th every year, Pope's Day, which the British still celebrate as Guy Fawkes Day. When the Quebec Act of 1774 legalized Catholicism in Canada, the Congress called this decision impolitic, unjust and cruel, as well as unconstitutional. As late as 1826, Thomas Jefferson Dog whistled that the Declaration had burst the chains of monkish ignorance and superstition. Mr. Moore does not mention the religious origins of secular liberty, the anti-Catholic bigotry that was then considered progressive, or the British Whigs' distrust of Protestant enthusiasm, which they considered a kind of democratic dynamite.
Without this context, we cannot understand what liberty meant to Wilkes and Franklin. Why the okay, so as far as uh, anti-Catholic bigotry, if uh, anti-Catholic bigotry enables you to have a more cohesive nation because you're united around a different religious approach, right, then you are more cohesive, you have higher social trust, life will be better for most people. So sometimes bigotry is adaptive. Now, there are other times in a multicultural situation where uh, bigotry may prove to be maladaptive, all right? You don't want to walk around filled with rage against outgroups if you're working amongst outgroups. If uh, your neighbors are members of outgroups, you want to have the best possible relations you can with, with people in general. But antipathy towards outgroups is an inevitable part of in-group identity. You also don't want to lack an in-group identity. So it's kind of a fine road that... You need to walk to be effective in life, but there certainly is a time and a place for bigotry, right? If that increases your in-group identity and creates a more cohesive and trusting society, then you're being served by your, you know, bigotry against Catholics or your bigotry against, you know, whatever outgroup you name. Now, as far as the regime of King George III being a tyranny, the American president today has all the same foreign policy powers as King George III had. An American president today can you know, go to war with any nation, can you know, send off nuclear weapons, can assassinate anyone who's not an American citizen. So to be a functioning democracy, you have to have considerable elements of dictatorship. And uh, the United States has considerable elements of dictatorship, as we saw during COVID, when all sorts of rights that we just took for granted were you know, just disappeared overnight. Right, back to this terrific book by Christopher Caldwell, The Age of Entitlement talks about the civil rights model of executive orders of litigation of court-ordered redress became the basis in American life for resolving every question, pitting you know, some new idea of fairness and equity against old traditions, right? The persistence of different roles for men and women, you know, different roles for different groups with different gifts, you know, the, the moral standing of homosexuality, the welcome that is due to immigrants, the considerations befitting the wheelchair-bound, so civil rights has turned into a license for the government to do what the Constitution would not previously have permitted. So civil rights moved beyond the context of Jim Crow laws almost immediately and became the dominant Constitution and dispensation in America. So this new political style was very well designed for destroying traditional institutions, not so much for building new ones. So Jamaican-born Harvard sociologist Orlando Patterson enthused in the early 1970s that uh, civil rights represents an awesome opportunity. Black Americans can be the first group in the history of mankind to transcend the confines and grip of a cultural heritage. They can become the most modern of all peoples, people who feel no need for a nation, for a past, for a particular culture, but whose style of life will be a rational and continually changing adaptation to the exigencies of survival at the highest possible level of existence. So the next great cultural advance of humanity will mean the rejection of tradition and particularism. Well, that's not how civil rights was sold. It's not a life that most Americans want. Right? Civil rights was sold as just a toolbox of reform measures to remedy one heinous constitutional exception of Jim Crow laws in the South. So Americans thought the civil rights would be limited to Jim Crow laws. Right, they would not have consented to it otherwise. But Orlando Patterson was one of the few who understood there were no logical grounds for limiting civil rights to desegregation. And Yale University law professor Robert Bork 
saw that immigrant rights, children's rights, gay rights, the rights of the aged were not explicitly in civil rights legislation, but they could be easily induced from it. So the civil rights movement became a template, became a new system for overthrowing the traditions that hindered black people, and it became the model for overthrowing every tradition in American life, starting but not ending with the different roles for men and women. Years preceding that, 1764 to 1775. That 11-year crisis that took place in the American colonies. And it wasn't just in the American colonies where this was going on. It was also in places like Bermuda and Ireland. This was the way that, um, that British colonists looked at the British imperial system. So first and foremost, how did that system work or how was it supposed to work? Now, you start seeing British colonies, of course, in the Americas with the founding of Jamestown in 1607. And I talked about that on the last podcast, the, the story of the sea venture and resupplying Jamestown. But uh, Jamestown was the first permanent English colony in, in British North America. But they also had other colonial interests in the Caribbean. Of course, you had Ireland, which originally was a British colony. And so this imperial structure is being formed in the 17th and then into the 18th century. How did the central authority, meaning the parliament in London and the king, deal with the colonies? And then how did the colonies view themselves in relation to the parliament and the king? So when you look at Jamestown and you look at Plymouth or any of the other 13, we'll just, we'll just focus on British North America. We're not going to bring in the other colonies, but they all, they all viewed things this way. So when you look at these 13 colonies and how they were established, many of them were established as proprietary colonies, meaning that the uh, crown essentially gave a proprietary company, a, a, you know, a, a private enterprise, land, or at least a charter for land in the New World. And this company went out and they footed the entire bill. And they also appointed the directors and the governors and these type of things because that was under, that was how the system worked. These were proprietary colonies. Now, you did have royal colonies. Royal colonies were where the king would then appoint the governor. And the way the system worked is that these proprietary colonies, almost all of them, would become royal colonies by the time we got to independence in 1776. So the king would have direct control of the colonies. And essentially, that's how the colonists looked at the structure. They actually, at one point, the reason they appealed to the kings is because they viewed themselves as part of the king's domain, right? This was the royal domain. Parliament had no control over it. So that's one part of the American War for Independence that's often missed. One of the reasons why the colonists believed that Parliament was acting unjustly or unconstitutionally is because they thought Parliament really had no control over the colonies because they weren't represented. In okay, so a dramatic expansion of civil rights was into the relations between men and women. And uh, traditional mores recognizing that you know men and women had different gifts and they should you know be afforded different indulgences uh, that came under attack from civil rights legislation. So Christopher Cordwell has great insight into this. Here's just a paragraph: You can call sexual morality a mythology constructed by life-hating prudes, but they too serve an erotic function. Right? Without some kind of external source of sexual morality, such as from God, from religion, from tradition. People who would behave in a civilized way must produce their own prudery, their own sexual discipline and restraint and carry it around inside of them. So men must demasculinize, women must defeminize, which is you know, a result of civil rights. So Ray Davies of the Kinks wrote in his 1970s song about the glut of sensual gratifications often to a rock star. I've got so many women that I wished I wasn't a man. So hypersexualization becomes a mask worn by desexualized what is thrilling, fulfilling, and functional about sexuality might be wrapped up in the very complexes about sexuality that crusaders for sexual freedom and other reformers want to get rid of. So the liberal left wants to get rid of these traditional hierarchies, you know, traditional differences in roles between men and women, between you know, aristocrats and proles, between different groups. They want to get rid of hierarchies around Things like sexual purity, work ethic, religious affiliation, family pedigree, ethnic bona fides. And they want a new status hierarchy of liberalism rooted in cognitive elitism 
and kind of centered around a morality that distinguishes between those who are aware, those who are woke, and those who are not, those who possess the psychic maturity to accede to liberalism, and those who lack it and must be reformed, must be educated, must be bullied. So even people on the left have a great desire to dismiss the vast majority of humanity as absolute rubbish or, or trash, just unenlightened people who need to be you know, bullied into becoming uh, fit for society. So conservatives see this liberal perspective as just another elaborate facade for a status hierarchy that uh, puts liberals on top. The liberals think that, hey, thinking people, you know, the educated, the, the thoughtful, the disciplined, those who see themselves as having, you know, overcome traditional folkways and outdated traditions who have a particularly disciplined and reflexive understanding of themselves and their behavior, surely these are the people who should lead. And these are the badges of honor that are conferred on liberals and withheld from non-liberals. And because the liberal left has a near monopoly on the means of cultural reproduction, right, their own kind of identity politics just pass under the radar screen. It's camouflaged in this aura of hard-nosed utilitarianism. Right? This is Ronnie Goodman in his terrific work in progress, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression on the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. But conservatives believe that they can see through this camouflage and they can see through the threat represented by liberalism to denigrate not only conservative thought, but conservatives themselves. So perhaps by nature, many conservatives are placid, compliant, and respectful. Most conservatives see themselves as civil, patriotic Americans who simply want to be left alone with their families and with their guns and with their religion. So conservatives are left speechless and stupefied by the never-ending onslaught of personal attacks, lies, and name-calling that the left rains down on them. So conservatives are aware of this cultural oppression, are united in a conviction that liberalism's rational facade conceals what is a campaign of psychological warfare, whose purpose is to undermine the self-confidence, conservative culture, and supplant it with a liberal culture. So that's why you get this profound incongruity between the good-natured innocuousness of ordinary conservatives and the venomous vitriol to which liberals would subject them. So let's get a little Brian McClenahan here on the 1776 uh, project. Let's talk about the topic of the day, which is the 1776 project. So the 1619 project, which I addressed uh, in a previous episode, has now spawned the 1776 project. This is the quote-unquote conservative reaction to the 1619 project. So it was bound to happen. I mean, the, the 1619 project, for all the bad things about it, I will say this, it has been an important watershed in at least popular history. I mean... It started a discussion that I don't personally think needed to be had, um, but it has. Um, and so you can say at least positive for the people that were involved in that. They've done what they what they sought out to do, which is get people talking about their work. I did it one time. I also wrote a piece for Chronicles magazine for it because I was asked. But I think the project would just go away if people would ignore it. Now, unfortunately, it's also the goal of the project is also to get the, the 1619 project to get the material into school curriculum. So that's where it could be problematic um, overall long term. But, of course, the 1776 project has now been produced, and the goal of it, as it says in this piece I'm going to read about it, is a nonpartisan black-led response to the 1619 Project Initiative. Excuse me. So this is a quote-unquote nonpartisan. Now, you see, here is the problem with all of this. The 1619 Project is partisan. It's influenced by political ideas. It's influenced by a reading of history. 
So is the 1776 Project. It's also partisan and influenced by a particular reading of history. There isn't any objective history. It's a myth. And I've talked about that on this podcast as well. There is no objective history. It does not exist. The problem with history is that most people don't admit their biases up front. So by the 1776 Project saying this is nonpartisan, this is objective. No, it's not. It's not at all. You have an agenda. You're trying to refute the 1619 Project. It's based on your understanding of history and your reading of it, which is a Lincolnian reading of history. Um, so that's your perspective. You are being colored by your understanding of history. The same thing with the 1619 Project. These people have an agenda. It's based on their understanding of what they've read in history, their worldview, which is victimhood. And so they're going to write a series of essays based on victimhood. It's simple as that. The problem is we don't admit this stuff up front. Now, if you're a student enough, you can read into it and say, well, yeah, these are what these people are. If you So if I had a role model, all right, it might be Andrew Ridgely of, of Wham. <laughs> right? Wham, do you remember Wham from the mid-1980s? It consists of uh, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely, and there's a new Netflix documentary about uh, Wham. And I, I like what Andrew Ridgely did. He recognized that uh, George Michael was overwhelmingly the most talented, and he recognized that if Wham wanted to have hits, that they would, they would come from George Michael. And so he's happy to let the pop star life go. He's happy to recognize that you know, being a pop star is not his fate. I mean, how many other artists or you know, gurus or YouTube personalities, right, being one half of one of the biggest bands in the world after achieving all sorts of worldwide number one hits, selling more than 30 million records, would just give up so willingly without bitterness or resentment. So as far as pop star ego, Andrew, Andrew Ridgely never had it. So early on, he had some discomfort about handing all songwriting duties over to George Michael, but he also accepts it logically. If he wants hits, the better songwriter writes. And so by the end of Wham!, He's met with endless quips over his redundant role in the band from interviewers like Terry Wogan and Paula Yates, and he just laughs them off. At his final farewell concert at Wembley in 1986, he walks off humbly. I was happy for my friend. He stood on the cusp of greatness, but I didn't know what being George Michael truly meant. So Andrew Ridgely just walked away from stardom, recognizing that George Michael was truly the star of Wham! And... uh, that shows a great deal of maturity. If you read enough history, it becomes very clear from the beginning what these people are. And one of the things that I was always charged with doing when I was an undergraduate and graduate student by good professors was figuring out who these people were that were writing these books. For example, if you know Eric Foner is a communist, which he is, you're going to understand that everything he writes comes with a communist worldview. There's only one book that he's ever produced that doesn't have that worldview, and that's his Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men. And that's because Eugene Genovese had a heavy hand in that particular book. Now, Genovese was also a communist, but Genovese, when that book was produced, but Genovese was um, a bit different in that he was uh, certainly a communist in in the 1970s, but he was interested more in uh, a non-ideological history. He was honest in many ways. And so that particular book is at least honest. So, and I will say Foner's The Second Founding is is honest in what happened during Reconstruction. I mean, there are things about Eric Foner where he's right, okay? But you know when you read Eric Foner what you're getting. Um, And that's the important thing. You know, for example, when you read Forrest MacDonald what you're getting. He's a Hamiltonian. But at least he was honest when he wrote his book on Jefferson. I mean, uh, Forrest MacDonald is a conservative historian. You know what you're getting. This is the where understanding who these historians are makes sense. And for the 1776 Project to say it's nonpartisan, it's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, it, you don't have objective history. There's a, a book by a man named Novick entitled That Noble Dream. Uh, looking for a, a subtitle, something like this.
Yeah, Peter Novick about uh, objectivity and history. Came book came out in 1988. Amazing book. Hey, everybody, hello what from is, sunny Colorado. Today design, we're going to talk say. about France. Uh, there have been a number of protests and a number of schools and police officers have been burned in the last couple of days. The triggering event is the police killed a kid. Um, I want to say it was like 15, 17, something like that. And so there's been this spontaneous uprising of violence. We haven't seen activity like this since 2005. Back then, similar cause, uh, police killed a couple of kids that were hiding from the police, and it triggered riots that lasted several weeks. Uh, too soon to know if this is... I know, I know. You want a cartoon version of reality. Well, I'm going to give you three minutes of a cartoon version of reality. It's going to be one of those sort of explosive, protracted events, but it's worth considering because France is not like a lot of other places. Now, here in the United States... We obviously have a checkered past uh, and a checkered present when it comes to issues of race, and it's part of the conversation all the time. And there are members of a number of minorities that are represented in governments at all levels, especially the national level. We've even had a uh, black president. Uh, that is not the situation in France. In France, uh, they... So what did having a black president do for black Americans? Right, uh, Are black Americans better off for having had a, a black president? And if so, how so? Right? It's not like France's race problems are unique. Or America's race problems are unique. These problems are reproduced everywhere you go in the world that have these racial combinations. They made the decision back after the revolution that ethnic conflict was so extreme that they had to redefine what the term French means. So it didn't matter if you were Catalan or Basque or from Paris or Marseille or Alsatian. It didn't matter. Everyone was French now. And all of the very... Yeah, just imagine if uh, France got an urban youth as president. That would solve so many of these problems, right? Various groups that had been part of a series of civil wars and disturbances in France going back a millennium, all of a sudden were considered all of the same family. And in the modern age, what that means is it's illegal, uh, unconstitutional even, to collect ethnic data on the French population. And if everyone was just Basque or Catalan or French or Alsatian, that might be okay. But that is not the France of today. As part of the colonial legacy, a number of people from their former colonies have moved to the mainland France, metropolitan France, and even have French citizenship. In fact, in some cases, their great-great-grandparents had French citizenship. So these are not people who arrived recently. But because it's illegal, unconstitutional, to collect any sort of racial data, they exist as a sort of second class that is, from the American term, almost undocumented because of the racism that exists in all societies. So in the case of France, they don't even know how big the racial problem is. It's probably about 15% of the population is non-ethnic French. Uh, gosh, I thought if you simply didn't collect uh, racial statistics, you wouldn't have racial problems. But legally French. Uh, and that has institutionalized the racism in a way that we have a really hard time processing here in the United States. In many cases, it's more similar to what they've got in Brazil. You've got an urban center where the ethnic French live that is relatively well off. And then you've got a ring of suburbs that is more akin to slums where most of the non-ethnic French who are still French citizens live. And because the French can't even do the first step of collecting data in order to get a good grip on what the size of the issue is, it's really hard for the government to apportion resources outside of law enforcement. So in many ways, parts of France, even in their major cities, resemble a little bit of armed camps. And that makes it very easy for uh, violence to erupt because it's, it's not a... Well, wait a second. Aren't there similar armed camps wherever you have these racial combinations anywhere you go in the world? You cannot have civilization without walls. All right? Either you have natural walls such as mountains or oceans, or you have to put up you know, artificial walls to maintain civilization. When Rome's walls fell and the barbarians plundered, right, Roman civilization came to an end big reach for people who are the subject of living in the armed camps to rebel against the people who are supposedly providing law and order. Now, for those of you who know my work, you know that I'm very bullish on France in the long run. They never bet their economic, much less their political system, on globalization, and they never integrated their economy into the European Union. They've always seen themselves as a step apart, and that means that they've sacrificed a lot of efficiencies and a lot of the reach they could have gotten under the globalized era in order to maintain a more nationally oriented economic... So France has about the highest percentage of government spending of any major first world country of which I'm aware. 
And yet, uh, life in France, for, for all its problems, for most of its citizens, is still pretty good. Like many Americans are amazed at the quality of life in, in France when they visit. ...system that comes at a big cost, but it does mean as globalization breaks down that the French don't have that far to fall. Because if the EU were to dissolve tomorrow and freedom of the seas would cease to exist next week, the French economic system is largely in-house. They're a massive producer and exporter of agricultural products. They've got energy nearby in both the North Sea and in Northwest Africa. Uh, there are several countries removed from the Ukraine war and what's going on with the Russians. And their primary economic competitor is also their primary political partner in the current environment, and that is Germany. And unlike the French, the Germans have gone whole hog on globalization to the point that we're already seeing massive problems there when it comes to exposure to the Chinese systems or the Russian systems or whatever. The French have none of that. And then finally, the French demographic is strong because there's a neonatal sort of policy set that encourages people to have kids in large numbers, giving France the healthiest demographic structure in the world outside of New Zealand. And... Uh, Okay, Mark Levin has a new book, and he's a really bad historian. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I think there is an American okay. conservative tradition, but it's not what uh, people think it is. It's certainly not Abraham Lincoln. And we'll talk more about Lincoln this week, too, but it's not Abraham Lincoln. No. If that's conservative, well, we're doomed. Because all you're doing is conserving the revolution of the 1860s, which, by the way, is ongoing. I mentioned it yesterday. I mean, this is what these people want. In the email I sent out yesterday, if you're on the email list, you would have gotten it. There were two articles back-to-back, -back, you know, two days apart, actually one, one day apart two consecutive days from the Daily Beast, one saying that Juneteenth should not be a national holiday, one saying it's a national holiday because it's a day to talk about getting the Confederacy. I mean, nobody even knows what this thing is, but remember, it was Republicans who were all on board for having Juneteenth be a holiday. Why? Well, because this is championing Republicans. You see, these people live in this very stupid R versus D world. And again, that's red meat for most people walking around thinking, well, if we just get the Democrats, everything's going to be all right. What are you going to give them? Republicans? The stupid party? The morons that wouldn't vote to, uh, to uh, maintain traditional American society if they wanted to. I mean, we see it all the time. There are a few good Republicans that will vote to do the right thing. But for the most part, when, when the masses go out, American people in the states go out and they vote Republican, unless you're talking about state and local elections, you're voting for a bunch of establishment hacks. And Mark Levin really is showcases the mental illness in some ways that is the establishment. And I'll talk about at the beginning. I mean, I've made fun of Democrats for doing this exact same thing that Mark Levin talks about at the beginning of this monologue. It's really stupid. So let me get into it. I'm just going to read you, I'm not going to read Jeff Poor's little introduction to it, but just read you what Mark Levin had to say about this. He says, I really believe in fate, and I believe God gives us a path to follow, and hopefully we can find that path and follow it, and some people do. Okay, well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that statement. All right, I mean, that's, that's vanilla. Some people are athletes, some people are professors, some people make sure we're fed. They're farmers, they're truck drivers, you name it. <laughs> wow, what deep insight, Levin. Me, for me, the path apparently is this. What's this? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I spend my weekends and my nights and early mornings doing this, getting these bags under my eyes. I don't sleep a lot. I just don't. Things worry me. Things concern me. Now, think about... Yeah, if you're falling asleep because uh, you can't sleep because of what's going on in the world, there's something wrong with you because your ability to shape what goes on in the world is severely limited. And so you have to... You have to have a vastly exaggerated sense of your own importance, right, to to lose sleep over the, you know, the fate of the nation. Why would you lose sleep over something you can't control, something that's far more complex than you can even possibly comprehend? About what's going on here. Now, so he's saying that my job is to come out here and talk to you about things that worry me and things that concern me. And of course, if you watch the video behind Levin, you have Abraham Lincoln. Now, you can put any Democrat there and they'd have Abraham Lincoln behind him too. What's the difference? You see? Uh, in fact, they would, they'd love Abraham Lincoln because Abraham Lincoln began the revolution. He began the left-wing revolution we're seeing. Now, of course, the Republicans of the 1860s wouldn't have agreed with a lot of what the left does, but they began the revolution. They started the process. That's why I said, even before that, you want to go back to someone who really began the revolution before that, it would be Alexander Hamilton. But 
Those people, the centralizers, began the revolution we're seeing now, and it opened the door to all the things that we are experiencing in modern American society from the center. Now, so Brian McClanahan is a big believer in federalism, like devolve as much power as possible to the states. Oh, this doesn't happen everywhere else, but when you start looking at extreme centralization, which is what all these people were, then you get the culture war on steroids because the states can't do anything about it. The real conservative bulwarks in America were the states. And I use this quote over and over again. Yeah, so the reason that America doesn't have the level of social welfare spending that other first world nations have is largely because America is a federalist society and a racially divided society. And Americans, by and large, they want to vote for social welfare spending for groups who are not them. John C. Calhoun. I'm a conservative, and because I'm a conservative, I'm a states' rights man. Calhoun knew what was going on. The centralizers, those in New England, who had a whole different agenda, and it wasn't just about slavery, had a whole different agenda than what they had in the rest of the United States, were trying to use nationalism as cover for real sectionalism. That's what George Washington talked about over and over again. And the next class of McLean Academy, in fact, is going to be reading George Washington. I'm really excited about this class because uh, Washington is so important to understand. But Washington talked about factionalism over and over again in subtle ways. Lincoln was a factionalist from the beginning. He wasn't concerned about the union for all. He was concerned about the union for his party, for his faction. That's not real nationalism. And what all these people are doing now, whether it's Levin talking about the right or the Democrats on the left or the Republicans on the right, whatever, if they're really on the right, they're interested in their own faction. They're not interested in union for all. A union for all would be so limited in power that the states would control all of the things that we often wring our hands over, that Mike Levin stays up nights, or Mark Levin, I'm sorry, stays up nights worrying about his wife will tell you that I have a pad next to my bed. I take notes about certain things that are going on in the country. So what? Does that make you special? It actually makes you mentally insane. To put a notepad next to your bed to write down things that worry you about the country? I mean, come on. There are other things, more important things to worry about than that. And I think- Well, I, I do sleep within a few, a few feet of a notepad. I often do get up in the night and uh, jot down notes of things I want to talk about on a show. Or I'll, as I go through the day, I'll jot down notes and put them in my pocket of things I want to talk about. Most Americans don't leave a notepad by their, bed, by their bed worrying about what happens in California if they don't live there, or worrying about what happens in Massachusetts. So nowhere, frankly, unless you're a Yankee, you don't worry about what happens anywhere else in your, but except in your state and your community. Now, I could worry about those things, but more importantly, I'd worry about my family first. What's happening there? Not all this other stuff. People should write it if they have a notepad to worry about things. Write down things that are important to you and your family. And, you know, you, you are what you take in and consume, and this is something that you know, people don't realize, but when all you do is consume negativity, that's what you become. People don't take the time to go around and see positive things in the world, and there's a lot out there for it. There's a lot of beautiful things in this world that people just don't pay attention to. You want to have an uplifting time? Put a hummingbird feeder out your window and make your own hummingbird food if you live anywhere near woods and you're going to have hummingbirds. And if you watch hummingbirds, it's beautiful, or a bird feeder, any kind of bird feeder. Plant some flowers. Go see the ocean. These are things that are really relaxing and they ground you. There's beautiful things in this world. And Mark Levin just wrings his hands. Oh no, what am I going to worry about? <laughs> I mean, I've talked about this before, how the left does this. This is, it's, this is, shows you that Mark Levin really is, in many ways, just another form of the left. They're two sides of the same coin. It's okay to have an eye on what's happening and know what's going on, but when you worry about things you can't control, that's just ridiculous. That's mental illness when you worry about things you can't control. But this is his job, he says, to tell you all these things, all the negativity. And of course, it's the Democrats at the root of all this. He gets into that. His next... So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Forty, how did you produce such an amazing show yesterday? The wit, the wisdom, the profundity. Well, it, it came from these little post-it notes that I stuck in my pocket and uh, carried around with me all day. And then these notes just exploded through the force of my personality around uh, 6, 10 p.m. 
last night. Lying. I am a voracious reader of his, mostly history. Well, I don't know what history he's reading, but anyways, I'll get into that in a minute. I'm trying to figure out what's taking place. Who's responsible for that? For what? And that's all well and good. But if I can't communicate that to you, if I don't have a platform like this or radio or books, then really it is all very interesting. But what's the point? Now, in some ways, he's correct about that. But there is a point to this. He's saying if he doesn't have a national, quote unquote, radio program or television show or writing a book, then what's the point of doing it? Well, there's lots of things. See, this is the inverse of how people should actually be thinking about these things. If you read this stuff, what's the point? You tell your family or if they don't want to hear it, you go get involved in your school board and your uh, in your county council or city council. You go to your civics meetings, go to your church, you talk to people there. You know how you change all this stuff? You tell people about things there. And as you do that, more and more people will come around to what's really going on. I had a friend of mine tell me uh, yesterday, in fact, we were talking about something. He said, you know, uh, I was at a, he, he was giving a talk to a group and uh, he said he, he made a point about, you know, what you need to do is go out and, and uh, work in your school boards. And he said, these two little old ladies were in the audience. She said, well, you know, yeah, our local city is the one that's responsible for our textbooks. That's exactly right. But Mark Levin will tell you it has to happen from the Republican Party, from the good old GOP at the center. We need to get Joe Biden. It's all Joe Biden's fault. <laughs> Joe Biden doesn't tell you what textbooks you use in your local school at all. There's none of that. You see, if you want to change things, you need to make Joe Biden as irrelevant as possible. In reality, you need to make Mark Levin as irrelevant as possible because he's a national voice. Right? So, I mean, I know people listen to this all over the, all over the United States, all over the world. But the fact is... Um, what I try to tell you is go out and do things at the local and state level. Even if you're in another country, you can still make change there if you don't have a federal system. Or I know people listen to this in places they don't have our American political system, but you can still make changes. And it doesn't have to be from the top down. Just changing your, your town, making the culture better there, living a better life, being an example for people. That's a great thing. Uh, just adding to notice, uh, Fox News puts uh, a great deal of emphasis on the comely legs of its uh, female panelists. Okay, you're probably wondering, what does David French have to say about Christian nationalism and the, uh, the new right? Good evening. The right since 2016. Um, and just kind of give an explainer um, on the differences between the old right and the new right. And I think it's important because one of the things that I'm constantly shocked by, genuinely shocked, is the extent to which when I talk to my progressive friends, I'm in academia, so obviously the majority of my colleagues are very progressive, um, they really have no, like, no clue what the new right is. Um, you know, people in my parents' generation still think of conservatism as Reaganism. Yeah. So yeah, old right versus new right, a primer, please. Yeah, so here's basically a very short history of like the last 10 years. Sure. Because if we get too much into this, you'll find out that the new right is actually the old right. <laughs> and the old right was the new right at a certain point. So. Well, walk us through that. Yeah, so, so we'll go back to about 10 years ago, so ago. And when um, Mitt Romney was running for president, there was a pretty, you know, I would say a, a rigorously enforced consensus that there were three legs of the Republican stool, that one of them was social conservatism. Republicans and conservatives were going to be pro-life. They were going to be for pro-religious, you know, they're going to be for religious liberty. The other stool, a leg of the stool, was going to be an, not truly economic libertarianism in the way that Cato Institute would envision it or the way Reason Magazine would envision it, but more limited government, less interference in, government interference in the economy, less central planning, less command and control, more deregulation. And then the final leg of the stool was going to be, or was for years, a strong national defense with an emphasis on international alliances and forward engagement. And so that was Reaganism in a nutshell. And for a while, um, Reaganism not only won uh, the sort of internecine battles on the right, it won in a rout to such an extent that if you turned on Fox News in, say, 2010, 2011, 2012, People like Seishan Hannity would be angry at any, any deviation. That was what a rhino was back then. A rhino was if you knocked any one of those legs of the stool out. And a lot of the suspicion about Mitt Romney was that 
he really wasn't all on board with all three components. That he, yes, economic, yes, uh, on the you know four deployed military and strong international alliances, but social conservatism he was suspect. And so those three legs were the Republican Party and the conservative movement. There was an enormous amount of unanimity. And whenever you have a lot of unanimity, you get fossilization, you get groupthink. Uh, a movement that is deprived of any real intellectual diversity can become stagnant. Mm-hmm. And so by 2015 or so, there was actually a lot of discontent on the right, um, that it just wasn't working, that this, this Reaganism was not right for the time. So here comes Donald Trump down the escalator, a, you know, an intellectual of populist bent. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> a man of singular personal ambition, okay, who didn't really necessarily have an ideology at all. If you remember back to 2015, 2016, I mean, he threw a bunch of stuff against the wall. He floated single-payer health care. He said that Planned Parenthood did many good things. He advocated ordering the military to commit war crimes. And the way, one of the ways that you would talk about Trump and his interaction with his audience is they were drawn to him attitudinally. They appreciated his combat- combativeness, but there was no there there as far as an ideology. And so he would kind of use his audience actually as a, a giant focus group, his rally audience. And what they would really cheer for, he'd double down on that. And what they didn't love so much, he'd leave that aside. But, you know, so Trump was very, very good, quite obviously, at capturing a crowd. What he was not so good at was creating any kind of intellectual movement at all. Well, for a lot of people who had been discontent with the state of conservatism, that was a giant opportunity. You could. F- okay, this is how Christopher Caldwell concludes his terrific 2020 book, The Age of Entitlement. In June 2015, with the presidential election heating up, right, he never mentions Donald Trump explicitly in this book. But in June 2015, with the presidential election heating up, talk show host Bill Maher invited a handful of journalists to discuss the future of American politics. A dozen Republicans well-respected within the party were seeking the nomination. Bill Maher asked one of his guests, the conservative journalist Ann Coulter, which candidate had the best chance of winning the general election. Her reply was surprising. She didn't think any of them would get the nomination. A self-promoting New York real estate developer, however, had announced his candidacy three days before, appearing in a Manhattan office building he pretended to own, making a few off-the-cuff-sounding remarks about Mexican immigration, how great America could be, and eliciting the unanimous ridicule of the press corps. Quarter sternly spoke his name. Her fellow panelists seemed to think she was cracking a joke. They twisted their faces into histrionic expressions of puzzlement to play along the studio audience roared with laughter. That's the end of his book, The Age of Entitlement. Fill the empty vessel. And so what a lot of people started to do was fill the empty vessel with actually something that was very much of the old right, the older right, older than Reaganism. So this is going to be America first. A not, it's not fair to call it isolationism, but a more isolationist foreign policy, which is an old strain of the right. You're going to fill it with economic populism, protectionism, etc., which is, again, an old strain of the right. And then you're going to preserve the social conservatism, but with more of an emphasis on state power than perhaps the old, that, that Reagan social conservatism did. So I grew up in the Reagan social conservatism era where the emphasis was on religious liberty. In other words, give churches freedom, give people of faith freedom, and then with our words and with our actions and with the examples of our lives, we can start to change the United States and we can sort of reintroduce or introduce or maintain religious influence on the United States of America. But the social conservatism of the Trump era became more authoritarian, more centered around state power. And, but all of that's old. All of that is what you would call paleo-conservatism in a way. So what, was, what made it new wasn't so much the ideology as the temperament, as the disposition. So it was tying a lot of older conservative ideas to Donald, the personality and the character of Donald Trump. So that the movement became to, and again, at no point did Trump say, I agree intellectually. This is the intellectually sounder approach. Um, they poured this into his movement 
and then imitated and began to adopt his disposition. So the new right, if the old right had an a ideological axis and a temperamental axis, it would be the Reagan ideology, the three stools, and then a temperamental approach very much like that of Ronald Reagan, of George H.W. Bush, of George W. Bush. People who, for lack of a better term, could be hard-nosed political fighters, but were also known as Joe. Hello, as I'm Ann Coulter. Welcome. Right. And so what Trump did is he said, no to that. No to that. You don't need to be a good guy. In fact, being a good guy could be a real problem because good guys are suckers. And so what you began to see was a new right that adopted an ideology of the paleo right and the disposition of Donald Trump. And so the new right is characterized by the older right ideology and the Trumpist disposition so that it is very, very combative and pugilistic online. It is very, very. Okay, let's uh, get a little here from Ann Coulter talking with Ryan Gaddis. To you all day because, well, about many things all week. Um, because we have DeSantis's new immigration plan or his campaign immigration plan. What do you think? I mean, it was it was great. I mean, it was everything I thought it was going to be, weirdly enough. Like, it's strange. Remember when Trump um, like unveiled the white paper and it was so much better than I had ever expected because we'd never seen something that good before. Um, with DeSantis, I kind of always knew he was going to be so good. So I read him and was like, okay, good. He hit this part. He hit this part. And it was more of a, did he miss anything? I was like, okay, he didn't miss anything. So that's great. Um, and I think that it was strong. I think that it was a really, really important. I think that was great for legal immigration. I want his legal immigration white paper now more that's than anything. That's true. That'll be Christmas in July when the, when the legal immigration. <laughs> well, we know he's good on legal immigration. I was thinking the same thing. What was so... Um... What was so revolutionary about Trump's immigration plan is, as you say, no candidate had ever, ever said it before. That was the biggest thing. Um, now we know it's popular. Now a lot of Republicans will pretend to run on many of those immigration policies. And the other thing that was kind of stunning about, about Trump's immigration plan, none of which he fulfilled, um, we have to have a, a sober, responsible, smart adult to do that, um, was was he, he didn't really understand the issues. <laughs> and so when he talked about it, it was just BS and bluster. And then he comes out with this immigration plan that obviously he never read and never understood himself, but man, it was good. Right. <laughs> I love, I mean, my favorite thing right now that the campaign, the Trump campaign's response is because, well, we built a wall. Well, <laughs> if that's true, where is it? Like, right. where is this wall that somehow 5 million illegals just crossed in the last two and a half years? There is no wall. What are you talking? First of all, it's a fence. It's not a wall that you built. Right, Secondly, right. you upgraded the wall that was there. And thirdly, it was 56 miles, 58 miles, 60 miles, whatever the case is. You didn't build a wall. Yes. Yes. And, it's you know, and the thing that long. frustrates me. And I'm yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and says, he said on CNN and he said it on two other interviews, he said, I completed the wall. You completed the, what are you, what is anyone seeing that I am not seeing? And it's like that conversation you had with Pedro Gonzalez last week where he said, it's not like there wasn't a Trump administration ringing the arms Republicans to get things done because they got the crime bill done. They just never cared about this wall and they never cared immigration. And that's the thing that's so frustrating. So I really hope, I mean, DeSantis really has to kick his campaign into the next year of the campaign and really start, I think, calling Trump out by name for saying certain things. I think that, I think DeSantis has to sit there and say, Donald Trump did not complete a border wall, point blank. You could be right. I, I I wanted to ask you about this because I don't know if you saw my column last week, but it was a it's driving me crazy how the media is relying so heavily on polls a year before the election. Um, and as I pointed out, Liddy Dole was tied with George Bush a year before the 2000 election. Um, the leading candidate in 2007 before the 2008 election um, was Rudy Giuliani. 2012, it was Newt Gingrich. And that was right up until December um, of, I guess that would be 2011. And I don't remember the media making such a big deal about well, whoa, Newt, the front runner, and Liddy Dole, she's right in there. All, all it is a year before the election, I would say pretty much right up until the primaries start, and that's when normal people start paying attention to politics. We're freaks, so it seems weird to us that 10, 20% of Americans haven't even heard of Ron DeSantis, but, you know, a lot of people, <laughs> they're normal, we're not. Um, 
And I, I'm not sure I agree with you that DeSantis should call Trump out by name just yet. I, 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 mean, I don't think he should shrink from it, but I just think Trump is so irrelevant. He's going to fade. Um, his supporters are basically QAnon. Uh, they're very active online. They're very active calling into talk radio, but it's just a mirage and BS. And I, 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 what, what's the point in taking on Trump? His, supporter, his supporters can point out that he didn't do any of this. Um, on the debate stage, if Trump claims he built the wall, <laughs> I think he has a good comeback, but it almost demeans him to compare his record to Trump's. Yeah, that, and I forgot the other thing I really love about his speech today, which I totally blanked out on. Um, when he said that he would change the rules of engagement with the cartel and with the human smugglers, that he would actually shoot cartel members bringing yes. fentanyl to the country, that was brilliant. Like, that was actually a moment where so many times have I sat with, you know, a random relative or a neighbor or whatever, just, why can't we just shoot them? Yes. And, I, and I'm like, you know, that is a good point. If they are bringing, if they're smuggling people or drugs, why exactly are we sitting there and worrying about their well-being? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I, 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 if they're not American citizens, we don't owe them anything. So, yeah, I'm fine with shooting them. And everyone always says, oh, we should, we should go to war against the cartels and treat this like a war. But nobody actually wants to do it. Right. So, yeah, no, I agree. That was, that was magnificent. Um, also, like your idea of going after the open um, unconstitutional discrimination against, against white men. Um, so what do you think about Chris Christie? I donated to him. Excellent. You get him on the debate stage, five dollars, right? I gave him twenty-five dollars, but yeah, I gave him twenty-five bucks. Uh, I didn't go to a bar for a night and drink a Bud Light or whatever because I would donate to Chris Christie. No, I, he has to make the debate stage. He has to. I would. I would pay. I would watch an hour of Chris Christie talking about Jared Kushner and the Trump administration. I really would. It could be a one-hour special, and I don't care. It could be a one-man act in the theater on Broadway. I go see it. I need him to be on the debate stage. Also, I loved it. Loved it when he said, uh, "You know, Trump attacked the way you look," and he said, "Is he an Adonis?" <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, Trump is fat. Like we're all pretending as if he had a six pack until last week and maybe he's got a little, no, Tubby, no, he's, I mean, Christie's no, obviously lightweight, but they are not, these are not men of, uh, who are going to be Mr. Olympus uh, tomorrow. And that's what they're competing for. But I love him. I love him when he sat there and talked about Jared and Ivanka being grifters who got billions of dollars from the Saudis. I wish he would talk about the Qatari money that they got to for 666th Avenue, um, that he, that he, Trump planned his own administration. It is to this day the most frustrating thing I have with Republicans is people say everyone was against him. And I said, yes, that is true. Everyone was against him. Now, everyone's against you at work. Do you bring those people on to work closer to you or do you bring <laughs> new people on who you get along with and operate better with? You tend not to bring people who hate you, who want to sit there and put, you know, as many problems in the system as humanly possible, make sure you can't achieve anything. That's generally not what a person who's looking to function does. That is what Donald Trump did because he never cared. Yes. Yes. And well, this will be in my column this week. So I'm um, sorry to repeat myself, but it's worth it. I looked up because I love the anger baby section. In, and I mean, it's really, really, really important. It's not only a magnet, but we end up with all of these <laughs> American citizens that are just, you know, poverty stricken third worlders changing, changing our culture, driving down wages. Um, but I looked up because I knew, you know, Trump had lathered about this during the 2016 campaign, started right off with it in 2015 about anger babies. Um, so I just did a quick Google search. And, you know, so one of the first things that uh, shocked me when I moved to America in 1977 was how fat Americans are and what a distinction there was in that category between Americans, Australians, and the English. Well, now when I visit England and Australia, there's no difference anymore. Australians are every bit as obese as Americans, and the English are pretty close. I found Ryan Turntusky. Um, yeah, he talked about it during the campaign, immediately dropped it when he became president. And the next time he mentioned anchor babies again was one week before the midterms, when he announced he was going to issue an executive order ending birthright citizenship for anchor babies. Every single news organization covered it. We had the midterms. He completely forgot about it again. And you know what the last link on Google was with, you know, Trump's name, executive order, Google ba or uh, anchor babies? Um, May 2023, Trump, if elected president, I will end anchor babies. Oh, my God. Wait, I have a great Trump White House story. Trump, and the thing is, he didn't know, he didn't know, he didn't know. In 2017, Trump...
Now, apparently 5,000, more than 5,000 flights uh, delayed across America. I have a great solution for this. More affirmative action with pilots and air traffic controllers, right? More affirmative action that will, that will solve many of these problems, right? Less merit, less excellence, more affirmative action. I think that's definitely the way to go. Asked uh, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, um, several conservative activists, and Louis Garment's chief of staff, whose name is leaving my mind right now. Uh, the chat says Americans love everything big and loud. There, there are national differences in the way that uh, the various nations play soccer. There are also significant national differences in the way various nations produce hardcore pornography. So you'll see in almost all Roman Catholic countries a whole lot of pornography that is anti-religious. But pornography that comes out of Protestant nations that don't have nearly as dominant a you know, national church, right? There's virtually no anti religious iconography in hardcore pornography. Another thing that stands out about American pornography compared to pornography produced elsewhere is that Americans love to focus on really big dicks and really big tits. So yeah, Americans have enormous food portions and they really love you know enormous dicks and enormous tits in their hardcore porn. Latin American nations, uh, Roman Catholic nations love you know the anti-religious iconography in their pornography. But whatever, I'll get back to it. But anyway, he sat there and he said, I don't know. This is the end of 2017. He's already been president for over a year now. Or beginning of 2018, another which one. He's been president for a significant portion of time. And he said, I don't understand why all these people are leaking and why all these people hate me and are working against me that I hired. And Louis Gomer's chief of staff pointed at Johnny DiStefano, the head of PPO, and said, he is bringing them in. He is failing your administration and he is hiring people who hate you. You need to fire him. Pointed right directly at him across the table. <laughs> Johnny DiStefano allegedly starts screaming and cursing it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. Kellyanne Conway defends him. Of course, it's like the swamp defending the swamp. Johnny leaves the meeting, immediately calls Maggie Haberman, who has this huge negative story on Jenny Thomas the next day about the meeting that they're at. Wow. And it's not like, it's not like Trump did, was not aware that these were the people bringing back the administration. He was told flat out by people like Louis Gohmert, who you could not get any more conservative, I mean, Republican than Louis Gohmert. Louis Gohmert should be in the Supreme Court. He would just write his own opinions, maybe the most insane <laughs> things you've ever seen before. He, he want to get rid of anger, babies. Louis would just sign that away. Anyway, so <laughs> Clarence Thomas would tell him to calm down. But you, would, you have these kinds of people telling him, these are the people bringing the problems into your administration, and he never fired him. Johnny was there until end of 2019 when Johnny McEntee point blank said it's like it, you have to go like you have to go I'm taking your job because you're running into the ground he said okay fine but it took three years of Trump knowing that this was a problem person in the administration and just letting it run because the the guy who says you're fired this tough guy this persona this the guy from the apprentice is a facade it's all fake I don't and even think crazy. if he had the right people he would have done anything on immigration I mean and, unless he got rid of um, Jovanka, they got rid of Jared and Ivanka, but they were running the presidency. I just think he did not care. I mean, he knew enough one week before the midterms to start saying he was going to get rid of anger babies again. And then, oh yeah, I've been elected. I, I don't think he cared. Um, when he says, I fired people who were against me, I don't think he means, you know, I want to get these like campaign promises through, but I just can't seem to do it. No, it's not that. It's because they leak things that were negative about him. Right, nothing right. to do with policy. I've, oh my gosh, I've hired the wrong people. He didn't give a crap about policy unless it was to push through um, the, the First Step Act to release criminals early, which really paid off in 2020 when crime had gone away as an issue. <laughs> what did you think of the Brett Baer interview where Brett's like, just, I mean, he just kept on going. It was a minute and a half of you saying all these horrible <laughs> things. And he like, Trump didn't even like say, okay, enough. He just kept on going and going and going and going. I was like, oh my God, this is hilarious. Calls Mick Mulvaney a born loser. Every person, and like, <laughs> what people don't understand. And Brett, you know, it's not his job to be like attacking nonstop, but 
some of those people followed other people. So Taylor Pompeo followed Tillerson. So it's it's not like, oh, he learned. He, you know, Tillerson was a bad, a bad person, didn't like him, didn't agree with him, but I got to write the second time. No, the man <laughs> in the position to the very end was Mike Pompeo, who doesn't like you and is not voting for you or supporting you because I never, never had your ideas in his head because he was a neocon the entire time. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just mind-numbing that we are at this place right now. I thought the best part of the Brett Bayer interview was when, um, again, Trump playing Mr. Tough Guy, you're fired. Remember he couldn't even fire Jeff Sessions. He asked Corey Lewandowski to do it for him. Yeah, he's a, he's a tough guy. But anyway, playing Mr. Tough Guy now on the campaign trail, he keeps saying um, that he, he thinks we should execute drug dealers, execute the death penalty. They have no problem with drug use in China. And you know why? I, I, I talked to the premier and he says, no, we execute them. And then... <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Brett Bear read back to him how he was releasing drug dealers, inviting them to the White House because Kim Kardashian wanted this woman and these other drug dealers released. And he was just a babbling old man about what, well, well if she were going to be executed, she wouldn't have committed those crimes. And oh, they treated her horribly. They treated her horribly. She was a drug dealer. You want to execute them. She was not just a drug dealer. She was part of an international cocaine ring. This wasn't a lady who was selling Lucy cigarettes and a couple of <laughs> marijuana ounces on the corner. She was, she was part of an intern. She was a middleman for an international cocaine crime. You don't get 26 years in prison or have long because you're selling Lucy's and some marijuana on the corner. You are selling major quantities of drugs and she was yes. for major. And then he says, well, you said you should be executed. He goes, oh no, starting now, I mean, not like, you know, if you did before, but like starting now. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? It is so delirious and just like, I keep telling you, are not on a Trump train. You're on a Trump carousel. We're in the same place <laughs> all the time. Sometimes we're down, sometimes we're up, but like eventually we're going to be underneath the carousel at this point. Like, <laughs> It's what so I loved about the Brett Bear interview was, um, I mean, it, it's like the video illustration of my book, Resistance is Futile, which was attacking the media for not going after Trump properly. He, he does a lot of really stupid things, a lot of really bad things, a lot of things he should be attacked for, where conservatives, where people like me who voted for him, who wrote in Trump We Trust, would say, whoa, whoa, this is really bad. But the media can never leave it at that. They have to throw in any rape to none. And then I have to say, well, no, he didn't rape a nun, though. <laughs> he did the <laughs> other stuff. And what Brett Baer showed is that just do, being giving a somber, serious, non-hysterical interview, asking him questions about his record is absolutely devastating. But the media right. won't do that. And the thing about Brett Baer, not that I, I, I don't know Brett Baer, so I'm not you know, company for no reason. The thing about Brett Baer is he has his own, he wasn't using the interview with Trump to make a moment for himself career-wise. Yes. So many people sit there and say, this is my, my moment. I can act deliriously insane and I'll get an MSNBC show. So let me be as crazy as possible and let me be the person that, you know, I'm the foil for him. The liberals will love me. They'll hate him, yada, yada, yada. And we're all back at stage one. Brett Baer, he has, you know, a career of his own. He's not going to get something special for this interview. So he had a very serious approach to this. It was like the guy from Axios, Jonathan Swan, who did the same exact thing. Jonathan Swan sat there and said, well, this is what you said. And this is what you did. What happened? And Trump just, you know, babbled and spun. And and it made for a great interview because we realized, oh, yeah, it's when you don't hate the interviewer, you get to actually there and say, what the hell is Trump actually talking about? Yes. Yes. And the other thing that was great about Bayer, and I think it's true of, um, I forget what his name, her name. Jonathan Swan. Well, there's Swan, but no, the cute blonde. I don't watch Fox News. Shannon something, maybe? Shannon, Shannon Breer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I like about them is, uh, unlike pretty much everyone else on cable TV, and also I don't watch regular network um, news, so I don't know what they are like, but it's not like they're trying to make names for themselves and be right. personalities and, you know, write a book and here's the Shannon Bream view of the world. No, you're you're the news presenter. And I like that that about both of them. I, I, I If I watch Fox News, um, it would be to try to get news and it would be from one of those two anchors um, because it isn't about them and them becoming famous personalities. Uh, that, right. was, that was a great thing about the Brett Baer interview with Trump. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. It was fabulous. And I cannot wait for Chris Christie to be filling the part of Brett Baer at the Republican <laughs> debates because he's polling at 5% now. So he's crossed the threshold. Polling wise, he just needs whatever few donors he needs left. I think he's at 25,000, he's 15,000, more something like that. But um, I, I will I will knock on doors to get him that extra $5 per person if that's yes. what it takes. 
Yes, viewers, if all of you can just donate $5, that's all you need to donate because the way the RNC determines who's on the debate stage is how many, among other things, how many individual donations they have. And I think they have to have 40,000 individual donations. So, you know, if everybody just donates $5, you don't have to go wild like Ryan here and donate a full 25 yeah. of a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I just, he just needs to be there and he needs so badly to sit there. And listen, Christy, I, I have a love hate with Christy because he is, he's Italian from New Jersey. He's my people. Like I get, I understand <laughs> him. I get him. But he then says things like, yeah, transgendering kids, way okay with me. And I'm like, so close, like so close that I can't really ever vote for you, I don't think. But you're so damn good. I will do whatever it takes to get you on a debate stage as long as humanly possible. There are a lot of things I don't like about Christie. And what was fun about the CNN town hall was like half of it was on Trump. As long as he's talking about Trump, I, like you say, I could watch all day. But the moment he gets on anything else, um, really, really don't really care for him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, maybe this is not the best idea. I, we'll see. But uh, but yeah, I'm a big Chris Christie fan as of this moment. And I really want to do the debate stage. And I think that somebody has to do the uncomfortable thing of ripping off the Band-Aid and exposing the wound. And he is going to be the guy who does it. And the one thing that he has, that Trump has, is he's naturally funny. Yes, yes. So that is his big advantage, is if they go pun for pun, it will be on an almost equal level playing field. It is the tri-state area level of sarcastic humor and just being okay with being an asshole. They both have it and I have it too. I know the talent you have and not a lot of other people do have it. So it will be good if they will both be on the same playing field. I don't even think Trump is funny, and especially now. Um, what was funny about him what, in 2016 was that he was so out, out, outrageous and stating, stating the truth that no one else would say. Remember that. It's not some amazing debater. He was running against 17 <laughs> open borders Republicans um, and, and you know, tax cuts and pro-war. No, he finally, Trump found the issues we wanted to vote on, didn't do any of it. Um, but by stating those things in an outrageous way, but now, I mean, especially knowing that it's all BS and he didn't do any of it, I don't find it cute. I don't find it funny. Um, whereas Christie, even though I dislike all of his other positions, I think he is charming and funny. Um, Trump's, to- Trump's quality tweets were like, no skinny person drinks a Diet Coke, even though he does Diet Coke. Or um, when Elizabeth Warren had that ad, do you remember when she's in the kitchen and her husband shows up and goes, oh, look who showed up. And he goes, where was he supposed to be? It's his kitchen. He's in his house. Like that, like those are the quality things that I liked about Trump that I think was really funny. Now, um, now he's a bitter old man. Mm-hmm. And also if you pull up videos, of, I did this the day, I pulled up videos of 2015 and from 2023. He has, he has not aged looks wise much, but the sound of his voice, the volume of his speech and the, how quickly he speaks has slowed down significantly. You are telling you, you can clearly tell this is a man of a significant age than he was eight years ago. Oh, that's interesting. That's he, has the, he has the blonde dyed hair and he's got that orange skin. You can't really ever tell how much a person, a, Queen Elizabeth, the first probably looked the same age her whole life too. Because, you know, how, how easy it is to sit there and keep that, you know, the whole costume going. But in terms <laughs> of his speech patterns and his voice strength, it is dwindled significantly. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, he's not the same man who high-fived Jeb Bush in the debate stage and Jeb wanted to like break his hand when he was doing it. <laughs> that? that was great. That was absolutely great. Okay, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because it's really fun right now, and I can remind you, um, when we were out at dinner one night, I told you my favorite group of immigrants are the Muslims. <laughs> because as long as they're not committing terrorism, they're really annoying to all the people we hate on the left. And how have we seen that <laughs> with, with the pride stuff and the transgender stuff? And I'm really enjoying this. Well, the news came out today that the Muslim Association, Muslim Brotherhood Association, or whatever, the, the biggest, the CARE, whatever the CARE stands for, something about Muslims, whatever, um, they, they are rallying in Montgomery County, Maryland against trans issues. And Montgomery County, Maryland is a very, very, very liberal part of America. And the most amazing thing in the entire world is seeing these white liberals yelling at them saying, no, you are siding with white supremacy. And they <laughs> do not care at all, nor know what they are talking about. It's like... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like my friend Eatlin Chan. She's a Democrat in New York and she organizes a thing called Plays. And she is, it's all about keeping the SHSATs, the specialized high schools, and so that they keep testing. And she's won all these elections locally in New York and gathered literally 50,000, 100,000 Asian Americans in New York to fight against Democrats trying to get rid of the SHSAT. And they're like, Hillary Clinton's like one of her top campaigners were like, you are siding with white supremacy. And she's like, what the hell are they talking about? I am Taiwanese or whatever she was, or Hong Kong, whatever she was. And I was like, I know that you don't get what they're saying, but they think that they're right and they're mentally ill. Those are the two things you really need to know. <laughs> well put, we just need white people to have the same reaction when they're called white supremacists because yeah. it's just as legit. And I don't care if you're Asian or Muslim or, or white. What, what are you talking about, white supremacy? This came out of the colleges 10 years ago. There are no white supremacists. Please knock it off, liberals. And until white people react that way too. Um, it's 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 just it's just a devil term. And the craziest thing is, I'm working on this for this new book I'm trying to write about education. But the craziest thing is, the people who support, most support of critical race theory, the original people who push critical race theory, uh, Anthony Delgado, for example, Richard Delgado, rather, Richard Delgado, one of the founders of critical race theory, they thought that things like Brown v. Board were terrible ideas because they believe segregation is good because black people get to experience their full blackness together without the white people moving in on it and affecting their culture and changing them. They are 100% against any kind of uh, mass integration. And the soft segregation that we're seeing in schools is completely being pushed by the left. Everything that a progressive was supposed to believe in when I was a kid in the 90s mm -hmm. um, is completely gone now. It is full-fledged 60s style college education radicalism or 70s style college educated ra radicalism. And um, the most uh, incredible thing is, especially after Floyd's death, so many, not well-to-do, but I would say middle-class or middle-class white people are just hysterically afraid of that, of them destroying their life. So they go along silently. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the line that does need to sit there and end and say, this is not really good for anybody, like, at all, especially. Okay, about uh, 10 days ago, Ann Corter interviewed Pedro Gonzalez from Chronicles Magazine. Gonzalez got uh, blasted by Breitbart about, what, 10 days ago for posting... Uh, for making anti-Jewish emails. Come to my Substack video with the great Pedro Gonzalez, whom, by the way, I discovered. I, I discovered you, Pedro, uh, when you were writing. I didn't even remember what the first thing was. I was I was doing a tweet storm about one night, but it was just a magnificent article, I think, in Chronicles, which Pedro writes for. And I sent out about 20 quotes from this article. Um, you thanked me, followed you, and I told you, um, yeah, Tucker Carlson is probably going to ask to have you on in the next few days. And you said, thank you. I love Tucker. And there you were either the next day or two days later. I have been Tucker Carlson's unpaid um, content provider for some time. So it's nice to have you here myself, Pedro Gonzalez. Welcome. And uh, thanks so much for that wonderful introduction. I think this is overdue. Uh, and yeah, I remember that vividly because I had, you know, I had never really done any me like real media before that. And I never really got any attention uh, from some of the big platform. And I, I wrote this article um, about Jared Kushner. And, and basically- oh, that was it. Okay. Yeah, my thesis was that, I, I no longer th think this is totally true, but basically my, my thesis at the time was a lot of the reason that things were not getting done um, and consistent with you know, the whole concept of an America first agenda was because you had Kushner that was effectively governing as a prime minister, but ultimately the buck stops with Trump. Yeah. But anyways, when I wrote that article, I remember you, you took like 10 screenshots from it and shared it. Now people were messaging me and saying, okay, you might be wondering what the heck is uh, the great pundit Tucker Carlson up to these days? Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. Belmont Hill is a small private school outside of Boston. It's not famous for its athletics. The school's mascot isn't even an animal. It's an 18th century navigational tool. The Belmont Hill Sextants. Doesn't even make sense. <laughs> so when it comes to sports, Belmont Hill is not trying very hard. But the school's athletic program can claim at least one important footnote to history. In 1975, its football roster contained two names that you will recognize even now, Mark Milley and Richard Levine. Milley is now the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Levine, of course, is our country's most famous admiral. 
Both transitioned late in life into overweight middle-aged women. Both wound up working as high-level officials in the Joe Biden administration. Their teammates at the all-boys school in Boston probably wouldn't have predicted any of that. Here's what Rick Levine looks like now from a video he just posted on Instagram. Hello, my name is Admiral Rachel Levine, and I have the honor of being the Assistant Secretary for Health at the United States Department of Health and Human Services. Happy Pride. Happy Pride Month. And actually, let's declare it a summer of pride. Happy summer of pride. Happy summer of pride. Rick Levine is so darn proud, he'd like to tell you about it all summer and possibly into the fall. He's got a lot to be proud of. What specifically, you ask? Well, strangely, he doesn't say, nor does he mention his former wife or children. He doesn't tell us whether they're proud, too. Since none of them have been invited onto the Today Show to talk about their feelings, we're going to have to guess. For now, we're going to assume that his former family is proud. And why wouldn't they be? Few Americans in our history has come as far as Rick Levine. Here's a fat guy in a Halloween costume who somehow became a federal health minister. Not a small thing. You try that. Not too long ago, this same man was a married pediatrician with kids lecturing about eating disorders at Penn State. Now he's emerged as a path-breaking lady admiral with medals on his chest. And he did all of that without winning a single naval battle or even being female. It's pretty inspiring. What we have here is living proof that in this country, you really can be whatever you want to be. If Rick Levine can become Admiral Rachel, why can't you be Napoleon? Or Lord Mountbatten, the last Viceroy of India. Ever see that guy's uniform? Or why not Shaka, the legendary Zulu war chief? You could bring your assegai and leopard hide shield to work at Deloitte and no one would be allowed to say a word about it. The HR department would have your back. Unfortunately, you can't actually do any of that. The point of Rick Levine's amazing transformation is not to free you from the inflexible husk that you were born in so that you can be more fully yourself, whatever you decide that is. No, that's not the point. Rick Levine's personal journey has nothing to do with you. It's about him. It's his journey. Your fantasies about becoming something totally new and different have not been approved yet. In fact, they're weird. Shaka, the Zulu war king? Come on, that's racist. Shut up and be proud of Admiral Rachel. I, Rachel L. Levine. She's the one who was smashed glass ceilings. You just got some kind of weird fetish. So actually, now that we're saying this out loud, it's pretty clear that Rick Levine has no interest in liberating you from anything. This is not about liberation. It's just the opposite. It's just another religious war, same as all the others. The people who think they're God versus everybody else. In primitive civilizations, which would include every civilization since the beginning of time until ours, people assumed there were rules, rules that no human being made, but that people could ignore only at their peril, at great risk. Some called these rules nature, or natural law, or even as societies advanced, theology. But most of the time, people didn't call them anything. They didn't have to. There wasn't a debate about whether the rules were real. People assumed there were consequences to pretending that you were God. They thought Sodom and Gomorrah were real places. They were destroyed for disobedience. They imagined the same thing could happen to them. Not anymore. Rick Levine doesn't worry about being punished by forces he can't see. He knows he's in charge. He makes the rules. He sets the limits. Reality is what he says it is. That's his view, and he shares it with virtually everybody else in a position of authority in the United States. That's a pretty bold bet, really. For seven million years, human beings have believed one thing, presumably based on some evidence, 
Around 2015, they became convinced of something completely different. Are they right? It feels like we're going to find out soon. Okay. Pretty good uh, segment there from Tucker. Let's hey, see what Tucker else Carlson. he's got. You may have found yourself wondering recently as the world slides closer to nuclear annihilation than any time in human history, why exactly are we at war with Russia? It seems like there's a pretty significant downside to this particular foreign policy decision, starting with economic collapse and ending potentially with extinction. So is there a good reason we're doing it? So many innocent young people have been killed. So many hundreds of billions of dollars have been wasted, some of them from the U.S. Treasury. So what's the point? Are we really doing this so the Biden family can repay its debts to the oligarchs who finance their beach house in Rehoboth? Are we doing it so our government can continue to lie about its illicit biolabs in Eastern Europe? So that flabby losers like Toria Newland and Tony Blinken can feel like they're doing something important with their sad, empty lives? Really? Honestly, there's got to be a better reason for waging this the most pointless war of all. What is it? Well, thankfully, we have an answer. The war against Russia, ladies and gentlemen, the war against Putin and for Ukraine is, in fact, a war for democracy. Watch and recall the motive. The president has said many times we are focused on what we can do to support Ukraine's effort uh, to fight for their democracy. Democracy must prevail. The Ukrainian people are fighting the fight for their democracy and in doing so for ours as well. Assisting and helping Ukraine win this fight for democracy and freedom. And of course, Ukrainian President Zelensky understand that what's at stake in Ukraine is bigger than just his nation. It is literally a battle for freedom and democracy themselves. They are showing the world what an existential fight for democracy looks like. President Zelensky and the Ukrainians have changed the course of history for the better. And we unequivocally are with the Ukrainian people in their fight to remain a sovereign democracy. Unequivocally with the Ukrainian people to remain a democracy. It's a bipartisan view. Democracy must prevail. You just heard noted democracy expert Nancy Pelosi say, the daughter of the mobbed up mayor of Baltimore. As Pelosi puts it, the Ukrainian people are fighting the fight for their democracy and for ours as well. That's right, for ours as well. Without Ukrainian democracy, in other words, we can have no democracy here. If the Ukrainians aren't free, neither are we. We must make sure they can vote in Kiev so we can continue to vote in Kansas City. It's really that simple. And yet tonight, we regret to tell you that we have a problem. It looks like they're not going to be able to vote in Kiev anymore. And no, for once, it's not Putin's fault. Democracy in Ukraine seems to be suspended by the world's foremost democracy advocate himself, Field Marshal Zelensky. Watch this. Elections should be held in peacetime where there is, when there is no war. So when you have an election, well, he says if we win, we'll let people vote. Otherwise, no. It doesn't bother me that uh, Ukraine's not holding elections during wartime. No, you vote when we feel like it, because ultimately we're completely in charge and make all the rules. Your job is to obey or be punished. That's our version of self-government. Self means me. I'm the government. Now, that's not just any autocrat. That's our chief ally in the war for democracy. This is the guy who just announced he's like a Jacan. Right. The United Kingdom didn't hold elections in the middle of uh, World War II. Cancel next year's elections. 
So you've got to wonder what the Biden administration thinks of this. We can't possibly continue to support Zelensky, that guy, after he said that, can we? Because in a clip less than 30 seconds long, he just blew up our entire rationale for supporting. Okay, I don't care about uh, Ukraine's flawed and corrupt uh, democracy. I don't believe that we should be arming Ukraine. American interests are not at stake. Let's go back to Ann Coulter talking to Pedro Gonzalez. Have you, have you seen that Ann Coulter's like retweeted your article 10 times? So that, yeah, it was a very, uh, it was a pivotal moment for me because it was just like, wow, someone's finally noticing and it doesn't feel like I'm just screaming into the void anymore about this stuff. So That is a great feeling. And you, you write about a lot of really great stuff. I think our politics, um, they're, they're, you can get a coat of paint between our politics. I was a little disappointed to see that you were at Mar-a-Lago for Trump's um, announcement that he was running for president, but I've forgiven you for that because of the wonderful things you've been writing since then. What like, were you doing there anyway? Well, I was invited as, you know, as, as essentially uh, as a guest. And it was, it was curious because it was one of these things where it was like, am I coming as an observer or something else? And the answer I got was kind of funny, but basically I went there, you know, my work, my work paid for it. And I went there as, 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 a, as a reporter and I ended up writing an article about it um, in Chronicles. It, it appeared in one of the print issues. It's online. I think the, the title is the, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, it's about Donald Trump. And so it starts with basically what I saw there and how there's this disconnect between exactly as the title suggests, basically Trump and the myth of Trump. And it was just funny because people got so angry at me for writing an article that was critical of Trump after being invited <laughs> into the, into the kingdom. Right. And, and it was just, this welcome actually, to the club. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was just like, it was kind of a, how dare you, this, you're, you're, un- you're an ingrate. And it's like, actually, isn't this, isn't this what we're supposed to do? Isn't, isn't right. this the job of, of actual journalists and reporters, you know? And it was, it was so funny because standing behind me was Olivia Nuzzi from, I think, New York Magazine. And like the people that were there who were Trump supporters were just scowling at her. Like, why is she here? Because Trump invited her because he specifically <laughs> asked for her to be there. Like he asked for Maggie Haberman to be there, but I like, but people like me are the bad guys, right? Right. Right. Okay. Put a pin in the Trump cult. Um, apart from reporters, um, okay, you were there as a reporter, so I can't really throw you into this. I guess this is about the Trump cult, but what I've noticed about the Trump cult and the people still supporting Trump and, you know, hanging out at Mar-a-Lago and were bust in for the indictment or, or the um, arraignment um, the other day is, is he's really down to, well, two things about them. One is they aren't the people who supported Trump in 2015. I pointed that out a million times. Those of us who supported him because of what he was running on, um, the immigration stuff in particular, and supported him in 2015. Man, we took all the slings and arrows back then. I was banned from Fox News for, <laughs> for supporting Trump and then banned from Fox News, well, either so they can steal from me or because I, didn't, I wasn't flacking and lying um, about Trump. Um, but all of the people I know who supported him in 2015, which is most of my friends, although a few of them were laggards just because he is such an utter vulgarian, but we supported his, his policies. And they're not the ones who support him anymore, Pedro. Well, Laura Ingram was one of the first uh, Trump supporters in June of 2015. I believe she's still a Trump supporter. Rush Limbaugh also got on the Trump train pretty early. Now it's these Johnny-come-latelys, and it really is just like a sense of belonging for them. And that's why I was sort of surprised to see you there, so I'm very happy to hear you were there as a reporter. But the people support, who is supporting him now? You have a much better view of this than I do. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's important, the distinction you just made, because it's, that's a distinction that I've been trying to make, right? Because the reality, the, the per- perennial reality, is that Trump exists because the ruling class, the elites, whatever you want to call them, have made continuous errors over the last 30, 40 years on immigration policy, uh, foreign policy, trade, you name it, right? And, and, yep. and because no one corrected those errors, you got Donald Trump. And so there was legitimate reasons to support him initially. And, you know, I, I was basically, I, I got into political writing because of Trump, in defense of Trump. Um, it was really, I think, in mid to late 2019 when I started to publish articles that were critical of him. But even then, it was, it was this, like this kind of gentle criticism of, you know, he's not doing what he said he was going to do. He's being undermined. Uh, you can find them in American Greatness. Where you, you can actually kind of track the trajectory of, of how I was going from like staunch, it's never his fault, to, okay, what's going on here? To, okay, this is his fault. Uh, and, um, but I think that's really important because those issues are still legitimate and, and they still have gone unanswered in terms of solutions. Right, because he didn't do anything. <laughs> right. And, and so 
there are people that supported him for the right reasons. And and I think there, there's also still people that are aware of all these problems, but they still think against all hope that he's still like the best guy for the job. And what I've been trying to do is convince them that like you're being taken advantage of, which is totally what's happening. Like that's what Trump does. He, he He's so good at selling himself as everyone's savior. And we can talk about this and how he can market himself as different kinds of saviors to different groups. And even though these different mythologies will conflict, it doesn't matter because he's such a talented marketer. Um, but there is a, a subset within that group that is like, we will vote for Trump if he's a corpse. Yes. And those are the people that, you know, for whatever, like they, they think that for whatever reason, um, that, that's just how it is. But ultimately, what the point that I'm making is that I've, I've gone to great lengths, and I think anyone like I should, to not conflate all of these different categories into that one extremely loud and aggressive subset. You know, like these are the kinds of people that like, I, I stopped posting like pictures of my family on Twitter. I always hide the faces of my kids when I post pictures of them, but I just stopped doing it because like they would just attack either me or my kids just because I- This I, is the MAGA, the, the MAGA cults, the Trump that cult. Tiny, again, I think it's, it's a small group, but they're just super loud and over and, and very online. Yes, I, I stress that a lot because it's really important, I think, to not conflate those with other people who, you know, again, they might be wrong, but but they look at Trump and they're like, well, you know, he still might be the best shot we have. And I think that right. the, the task of this primary is to convince people that's just not true. He's going to screw you over again. So Yes. Yes. The Trump cult, I really find sort of, I mean, simultaneously fascinating and repelling. Um, because at least from what I can tell, and one of the things you wrote about uh, this week were the people who showed up in the buses uh, for, for Trump showing up in court. And, you know, once you alerted me to that... Um, the buses that were being sent down from Orlando. I did a Google search, and it's funny, I don't know if you noticed this, but a few days before Trump's showing up in court on Tuesday, um, oh, there were predictions of hundreds of people. We got buses. We're going to get hundreds of people to show up and to show our support for Trump. And in the end, they got a few dozen. But then reading about who the few dozen were, I, I wonder, who are these people? And I mean, a lot of them are QAnon, um, very clearly QAnon. And then a lot of them, and these are the ones that I say are, are both repelling and fascinating and, well, heartbreaking, because they are precisely the left-behind Americans whom Trump promised to help. And that was the reason I supported Trump. And now I hate Trump for betraying them, and they're mad at me. <laughs> so, okay, fine, fine. Let your jobs be shipped abroad. Let America be changed into, um, you know, Uganda. See, see how well the ruling class and Trump himself treats you then. He has nothing but contempt for these people. Um, I mean, just one quick example that I just, I will never get over. January 6th, when we saw, we got a, we got a gander at the Trump base on January 6th, um, because I was wondering, who is showing up to hear this guy? And then I see them, you know, crawling into the Capitol. Oh, there they are. Now I see. Um, and Trump, it was reported from, you know, insiders in the White House. Trump complains that they weren't better dressed. Yeah, you complain that they looked low class. That was the, yeah. that was the head. It's in the, it's in the independent. Um, the story is the independent. The headline is that basically Trump's complaint was that his supporters looked low class. And, and look, that's it. You don't have to say anymore. Like that's the fundamental, and that's my my problem with Trump is that he sells himself as a savior to people that he either doesn't care or hates, and that's really the the, the fundamental problem with Trump at the end of the day. And, and but it's again his ability to market himself so effectively and create this mythology about himself that will make people you know lose their minds and like ruin friendships over this, um, which is something that like I've you know I've lived in in recent months, um, and it is really tragic. And, yes. So, um, I want to ask you so that we don't become even though I could bash Trump all day long, um, so, but I, so that I don't become too much like MSNBC. Um, I wanted to, to ask you, I'm throwing you, you know, a, a curveball here. Hadn't, hadn't, actually, I didn't tell you anything we were going to talk about. Um, but if, and if you don't have an opinion on them, then just say, you know, pass or move on. But I wanted to ask you about some of the other Republicans running for president. Um, I don't know if you saw it. I just watched Chris Christie's CNN town hall. Did you see it? And what do you think about him? I, honestly, I think Christie's really charismatic and kind of, he, I think it's, I don't think he stands a chance, but I think he's fun. Uh, he's like leaning into the whole, you know, I'm a big guy. Uh, he keeps repeating this line. We need to be big. We have to choose to be small to be big. And it's like someone basically said, you know, <laughs> you're going to be attacked for your weight. So you might as well just lean into it and just talk about big. Um, and, and he's funny. And I think he, he honestly, I like want to see him hoisted onto a stage just to debate Trump. Yes. Because uh, he has receipts. And I, I, and I think there's also like a personal vendetta there, which I mean, like I, I'm all for it. You know, like maybe that's 
I mean, I, 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 we're living in the age of Trump, so we're living in the age of like personal vendettas. But um, <laughs> but like I, I reported on this recently, and it's funny because I've been making use of Twitter's expanded characters. I uh, love so, that. Yeah, so I'm just like, writing articles, which is kind of dumb, I guess, because I'm like, giving away content for free. But but when when Christy made those comments about how Jared, like six months after leaving the White House, Jared Kushner, you know, just magically got like a two billion dollar gift from the Saudis. Um, I, I wrote about in, in response to that comment. I, I reminded people that Christie actually goes way back with the Kushners, and that basically Kushner, Jared hates him because Christie led the prosecution of his father, Charles Kushner, um, and, and specifically over like a witness tampering uh, affair, where basically Charles Kushner was being investigated for different crimes, tax related and also uh, related to political contributions. He's a big Democrat donor, and his brother-in-law was cooperating with the feds at the time. And so, to intimidate um, his sister and his brother-in-law, he uh, Charles Kushner paid a call girl to lure his brother-in-law into a motel room after pretending that her car had broken down. He, she lures him into a hotel room and then has sex with him while the camera's rolling, a hidden camera. And then Charles Kushner watches it. This is in court documents. He watches it and expresses satisfaction with the finished product and then mails it to his sister. And, and basically it's a threat. Like, I, I don't know, like we're going to make this public, this sex state public, if, if you continue to cooperate with the feds. And the shoulders, uh, his, his brother-in-law immediately turned it over to prosecutors because they were so mad. It totally backfired. Mm-hmm. And Chris Christie called it like one of the most disgusting cases that he had ever prosecuted. And Jared never forgot that. And, and so the first chance he got, which was when, when Christie was involved in the transition team after Trump won, uh, Jared had him pushed out. And Christie immediately knew what that was about. And then, yes. of course, in December 2020, uh, Jared made sure that Charles, his father, got a pardon. Yep. And Christie Christy remembers all this stuff. And so I, I, I hope that, uh, that he gets a, t- a chance to, to take some shots uh, over this. So, Yes, yes, I do, too. Um, I, I, the fact I'm, it shouldn't be brushed over that Jared was furious with Chris Christie as the United States attorney for prosecuting his father for not only shocking witness tampering, but shocking behavior within a family. I mean, if, if that were were my dad, um, I think if, if, if the subject ever came up, I'd just change the subject. Right. Um, yeah, he had to go away for a few years. Oh, yeah. no, Jared, he's, he is wounded and indignant. How dare this man yeah. show him to Chris Christie, show his face in public anymore. Um, yeah, that was what we got from the Trump presidency. The I think that, pardons I think for the Kushners. I think Jared, if he didn't say this out loud, that I imagined him saying it because it's true <laughs> anyways, but I'm almost certain that he's connected his advocacy for criminal justice reform to his, to his father. And like I said, if he hasn't said that, it's very clear that that's part of, of why right. he's an advocate, apart from the fact that he's you know, like a New York liberal Democrat at right. heart. But I mean, his dad went to, to prison for this stuff. So, you know, criminal justice reform, it's like he took the wrong lesson from it. You know, <laughs> instead of not committing crimes, we should just be more lenient on people who do commit crimes. Yes. Yes. And I, I mean, that is a pretty shocking thing about Trump's record in office, particularly given um, just the, the bacchanal of violence America has been experiencing since Trump's last year in office, that he passed what, what um, Governor DeSantis is calling the jailbreak bill um, to release criminals early from prison. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that law, Trump's law of releasing criminals, um, forbids records from being kept of who gets released. So we can never go back and say Trump released this person and then he murdered someone, which has happened yeah. to so many politicians before, including Mike Huckabee, including President Obama. Yeah. So there was a there was talk of in, introducing a, a basically a tracking provision for exactly those purposes so that we can monitor precisely who is benefiting, who's getting early release from the First Step Act. But it was killed. It, this I think the First Step Act, a lot of people kind of want to not talk about it or kind of downplay it as a minor error. I actually think it's hugely illustrative of the problems of the Trump administration, because when you take a closer look at it, it refutes not just the idea that, you know, Trump was like tough on crime or even tough on immigration. We can talk about that. There's a provision for a setback. Um, but also, you know, it's like, well, he couldn't get anything done because he was undermined by other Republicans in the deep state and he couldn't get stuff done. Actually, he did get stuff done, just the wrong stuff. And and he did his, like, the, if you talk to people, the, the few Republicans like on the Hill, and their staffers who were involved in the fight over the First Step Act, they will tell you the Trump administration waged a like left-wing pressure campaign to silence critics of the First Step Act. 
Mm -hmm. Just like Senator Cotton and Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Oh, there were brave Republican opponents. Um, Just footnote before you continue. Um, That's something the MAGA lunatics are lying about online right now, claiming that Ron DeSantis voted for the the First Step Act. No, 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 no. There was an earlier, quote, First Step Act, and that had nothing to do with early release. No, criminals would not be on the street, would not be raping and mugging you. Um, But it did create incentives for better behavior while in prison, which I'm totally not against. Uh, In fact, I mean, I'd like to start a campaign someday. Sorry, this is totally off the subject. But I'm, I, when you see on these TV cop dramas, you know, jokes, and I've heard this from, from policemen as well, that there is a lot, of, a lot of anal rape that goes on in prisons in the United States of America. And, you know, it's joked about on TV. I understand it's true. I think that's absolutely hideous. I think it is cruel and unusual punishment. Um, and once we got the border under control and we've saved our country, um, I, I would found an organization to do something about that because that is really outrageous. So anyway, it was, it was to create incentives for prisoners to behave better while they're in prison. Great idea. <laughs> Teach them skills. That's what DeSantis voted for. And the, the MAGA lunatics are all over. And I hate saying MAGA lunatics. They're really Trump lunatics because I do want to make America great again. It just turns out Trump was BSing us on that. Um, but they're all over claiming, oh, DeSantis voted for it. No, no, he didn't. No, this was this was Jared's baby. He brought the Kardashian or Kim Kardashian to the White House, which Trump was so proud of. And yeah, the pressure campaign. Sorry, get back to the pressure campaign. No, that was really it. it was, so it was the, the people that I've spoken with who, who worked on the Hill and were opposing this stuff, they just said, like, we were getting just pummeled by the Trump administration for opposing this stuff. So this and like basically they were getting their arms twisted. So this again, when you understand the story of the First Step Act and how hard the Trump administration fought to push this insane bill, this whole idea of like, well, he couldn't get funding uh, for the border wall because Republicans wouldn't play along. If he had played the same kind of hardball that he did on the First Step Act, right. for things like the wall, it, it would have happened. Um, okay. But it, and again, it's just, it's, 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 it's insane. One of the, the provisions included, it's called the Scarface provision, and it, it allows for the shortening of mandatory minimums for people that are caught smuggling drugs into the United States uh, by sea. So like t- either submarines, and the cartels actually like have these like makeshift submarines or other kinds of, of vessels, right? In other words, wow. that seems like it would apply to like narcos, right? Like right. nationals, and hence the nickname Scarface Provision. That it, those kinds of people, those traffickers, the specific group had never received any kind of leniency like this before in, in U.S. history, and you, it was brought to you by the Trump administration. Wow, and it's something that most people have no idea. Like Jeff Sessions uh, talked about this. I think there, there was an article also. You know, National Review is many things, but they're typically actually still good on crime. And so there was there's a few articles about this, just kind of emphasizing that like, look, we've never shortened mandatory minute, minimums for maritime drug smugglers, and Trump is doing it. Wow. Or basically given uh, discretion to do so. Um, and so it's a, it's a huge part of the failure of Trump, which is why people either try to downplay it or dismiss it. Tucker or Carlson, lie about it. Yeah. And Tucker managed to get numbers in 2019 on who was benefiting from early release. And surprise, it was not people that were in prison for like, I got caught with like, you know, one too many joints or something like that. It was like people <laughs> in prison for like arson and rape and homicide and like domestic terror and stuff like that. And they were the ones that were benefiting from it. And they still are. We just, it's really hard to track them, um, except when they're like high profile cases, like this Joel Francisco, one of the first guys that got out on early release, murdered someone at a nightclub. Uh, another guy named Troy Powell, who was the poster boy for the first step back. He went to the White House and everything. Uh, after getting early release on it, he ended up getting arrested in a major trafficking operation. Uh, police confiscated tons of drugs and weapons. And the headlines were like, he was once the poster boy for the first step back. Now he's going back to jail after, after being involved in a, in a major drug operation. And but again, these are the only the cases that we we catch kind of by yes. asking. So that would be a good bill for Republicans to push. Uh, just tracking them. Okay, you say you say these people have been rehabilitated. Transparency. They're always talking about transparency, transparency. Um, let, let's track the people who get early release. Yeah. Um, also, um, small point of clarification: no one in prison is not a hardened hardened criminal. You have to commit about um, five felonies before you end up in prison. Um, yep. <laughs> whenever you hear otherwise, they're talking about a plea bargain. And yeah, there's an awful lot of leniency before you end up in prison. If you're in prison, you're not only guilty; you're guilty of a lot of felonies and a lot of really really bad felonies. Um, and I really like your point on on the first step acts because not even talking about the Trump cultists, but just 
some of the GOP donors, um, who aren't always the brightest bulbs in the universe, um, will say to me when they're still defending Trump, that, oh, it wasn't his fault. The swamp was fighting with him. It wasn't his fault. It's nothing is ever his fault. Anyway, First Step Act, oh my gosh, does that contradict um, what their argument is. And I think crime, maybe even <laughs> a little bit more important these days, but if it, it's second to immigration is the most important issue facing the country. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that was really, the, it's so funny because the people that don't or have not followed me uh, and I'm like, and I'm not like a, a huge figure, so I guess I don't blame them. But the people that basically don't know anything else about me except for the fact that I'm critical of Trump will just assume that it's like, well, it's because your name is Pedro Gonzalez, and Trump, <laughs> is like, Trump is super based on immigration, and you're afraid he's going to deport you. And it's like it's actually the opposite. I actually turned on him because he was soft on immigration. And, and again, like I went, I went back and I was trying to figure out like when was the first time I published like an article that's critical of him, and it was in 2019. It's an American greatness, and I, I think the article is the headline is something like Trump is betraying his promises on immigration. Trump is betraying the working class. I think that's what the headline was. That's and, it's about, and it's about how he's increasing. I think at the time it was a number of seasonal workers that were coming into the United States, and the point that I was making. Is is like these are the kinds of visas that have high overstay rates. So, so yes. these seasonal workers magically transform into illegal aliens when they overstay and they just decide not to leave. And, and that if, if Trump had campaigned, this is the point that I was making, if he had campaigned on increasing the number of seasonal workers coming into the US who therefore contribute to illegal immigration, he wouldn't have won in 2016. Mm -hmm. but, but his administration was selling that to the public and other people like Mark Krikorian have, have, have talked about this. And I, I, I got a comment from him on my article that I wrote at the Mar-a-Lago where Mark was saying that, that basically before COVID, right before COVID, Trump was he was indicating that he was moving in that direction, that we're going to basically increase the number of legal immigration. It's, yes. it's that it's the meme, right? Like so many yes. of the memes that the right uses to make fun of like Ted Cruz and all these other Republicans, they actually apply to Trump. It yeah. was actually the Trump administration that was saying, you know, as long as they come here legally, it's fine. We're going to increase right. the number of H2B visas. We're going to increase the number of, uh, of, of EB5 visas uh, as long as they come here legally. Yeah. And it was, ironically, it was COVID that improved Trump's immigration right Yes, now. yes, yes. And also the... the much like, except in DeSantis' case, he was actually doing something. Um, but during COVID and <laughs> the entire media calling Governor DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, they're dropping like flies in Florida. Well, as you know, there was a huge, huge increase um, in people moving to Florida. <laughs> it's terrible. But the interesting thing was of the ones who moved to Florida, um, about two thirds of them registered as Republicans. Yeah. Well, why is this? Well, as the governor told me when everybody was, was this is what all, all Floridians were talking about and worrying about, are they gonna turn Florida blue? Um, and so I asked him about it and he said, no, CNN is our friends. They're terrifying liberals. They think we're dropping like flies down here. And that's why two thirds of the people coming to Florida are registering as Republicans. Well, similarly with Trump, the media was our friend because in 2016, they acted like, you know, he was gonna be Torquemada on immigration. And so the word gets out. Okay, let's get a little bit more. This is Ann Coulter talking to Ryan Gadesh. Actually, want us to other people do well and free. It's not good for black kids either. There was a dad, really good. There was a dad in um, Frisco County, Frisco, Texas, which is in uh, Collin County, a very, very well-to-do suburb of, of Collin County. Um, and his son got a 5.24 GPA. He was in all honors classes. He was number wow. 34 out of 650. Very 5.42? How, how is that possible? Because when you have an advanced placement class, you get an extra quarter, and he was oh, all okay. advanced placements. Okay, okay. Anyway, he's 30, like 30 out of 650 kids, black kid, only black kid in the top 100. Um, and the, like a few months after he found out his ranking for the year, and he wasn't obviously a valedictorian because he wasn't number one, but he was number, they, this, this institution gave him a special award for top black student. And oh. the dad was, but the craziest thing is to be a top black student, because uh, what, like top white student before, top student before 4.0 and above, you have to be 3.0 or above, 3.5 and above. So dad was like, so just by being mediocre, which is what this grade level is, we are supposed to reward you. And then you come out of this experience saying, well, now I'm, I'm black or Hispanic or American Indian. I have the mid-level, I should be therefore rewarded. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. dad ran for school board and won, um, who, who sat there and campaigned against it. But it's all these things that we're seeing as far as soft segregation goes, or a critical theory or critical gender theory with the trans stuff. And it is so good that finally, at least we're seeing some of these immigrant populations who still probably will be voting, you know, maybe not 80% Democrat, maybe only 70, whatever, we'll take as many as votes as we can possibly get, but that they are sitting there and saying, no, this is complete madness. Like, you're not going to tell my daughter that she can rip off her breasts and become a man and it's all okay. 
you know, I feel like the trans issue is one we're definitely going to win on. It's just oh, weird and frightening. And I mean, watching all those videos, I don't know if you saw any of them we got in last night, of the just gross sexual perversions going on at the gay rights parades. It, it, it reminds me, I don't know if I imagined this or there actually was a cartoon of a guy <laughs> going to a gay rights parade that, you know, I just, I thought gays were just like us. And then I went to a gay rights parade and found out they're a bunch of sexual degenerates. <laughs> well, it's also the the trans men who are showing their, their scars in their chest. And it's disgusting. It's gross. It's I, you do not anyone who looks at them for the 99 percent. i'm sure there's a few that you would not be able to tell or they look normal or whatever but most of them do look mentally ill or demonic mm -hmm. they literally look like there is something clearly off with them and they are seeing and i know someone who became trans much later on in life a woman to a man um and the, she was always has suffered from mental illness problems always was very easily susceptible to people influencing her opinions mm -hmm. we kind of lost contact she was a lesbian we lost contact over a few years and then she contacted me and said she was becoming a man and i was like you do not have you're not transgender you're mentally ill you've always been mentally <laughs> ill and i'm not being a joke you've always <laughs> been mentally ill your whole life and you're easily susceptible to yeah. someone being impressionable on you and the right person was and now you're gonna i don't know sell feet pictures until you make enough money to sit there and get your breasts removed but you will never be a man you will always be a woman who is mutilated now yeah i mean that's just no way to say other than that Yes, and I think we see so much aggression from the um, male to female transgenders. You were saying they were letting their, their surgery and the grotesquerie show. They're also letting their testosterone show. Uh, <laughs> I mean, heterosexual men who are not wearing dresses uh, have been lectured quite a bit about their toxic masculinity and are you mansplaining? And so, I mean, the, the American male these days is the most specific creature, certainly the white American male, the most specific creature that's ever walked the face of the, the earth. Whereas if you put a dress on, you don't, you don't have to be polite anymore. You're a woman. And <laughs> only you Daniel- have the testosterone and they're, they're like the most aggressive, what, what feminists think men are. Had only Daniel, whatever his name is from the subway, worn a dress while he choked up the same <laughs> black person, he'd be walking free today because it wouldn't be the same thing. No, it, it's true. And it's sad. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is. Okay, let's get one of the greatest uh, legal philosophical minds from Holland here, talking to one of the great legal minds in America from the Relief Factor Pain-Free Studio. With a woman I met at this conference, young woman. A, a lawyer and one of the leading conservatives, if not the leading, in my opinion, in Holland. And I, I need to tell you folks, I don't want to embarrass her, but the, along with her brains, is great courage, which is the rarest of the traits. She's not vaccinated. There's no reason on earth a young person should get vaccinated. None. It is a crime against humanity that we have forced young people to get vaccinated. Okay, I think that's ridiculous. Statistics are overwhelming that you should get vaccinated for COVID. And for everything else, your doctor tells you you should get vaccinated. So I think uh, Dennis is wrong. And I think this gorgeous Eva Vladingerbrook is wrong on this issue as well. Vaccines. More young people by far in the United States have died of drug overdose than of COVID. But that doesn't register on people's concern scale. Eva Vladingerbrook. Wait, what does what does it have to do with more people dying of drug overdoses than COVID? Even if that were true, why is that an argument against getting the COVID vaccine? Don't follow. And she has a Twitter account at Eva Flar V L A A R. Is that correct, Eva? Totally correct. Yes. Oh, good. And you you should have an international following, in my opinion. I know you're going to be doing actually a podcast uh, with on PragerU this week. Is that correct? Uh, on the 27th, I will be uh, I will be on with Will together for a full hour. Okay, I'm sorry. I just feel my brain slowing down. This is that you see people who do act heroic or who um, who have who who don't who don't recede to the will of liberals running 
everything and their lives can be ruined. And we see it time and time and time again. And I mean, how many, you know, fundraising GoFundMe is going to do for them? Right. It's not going to sit there and change their life. They're still going to be forever tagged with their life being destroyed. You know, it's just, it's just the truth, sadly enough. Um, and the worst thing is to, to fit into your ballywick. I was talking to some, some mothers of um, kids at some fancy New York private schools the other night. And, you know, it's bad enough to worry about you being canceled, but, but the mothers are telling me about the nonsense that is going on at some of the fancy schools. Um, and they don't want to hurt their kids. Of course. They're kids. That's, that's so much more frightening. They don't want to raise a ruckus. And um, no, I'm not going to spend, you know, a day in racism training class or whatever <laughs> it is. Um, and they're making the parents do all this. I'm worried about the 57 pronouns. And the parents, you know, they, and they're afraid to communicate with other parents because the other parents might be Stasi and turn them in. <laughs> right. No, it's true. It's so true. And I think that when it comes to educate, did you see, by the way, I didn't send this to you, so you might not have seen it. The Nicholas, it was probably from two weeks ago, Nicholas Kristoff's op-ed about Mississippi. No. Okay, so Mississippi, a couple of years ago, got a new state as superintendent of education, and she had a rule. And the rule was, if you cannot read at a third grade level, you cannot go to fourth grade, no exceptions at all. Right. Now, that doesn't seem, a third grade reading level, it's not exactly good to be an Einstein to sit down and get a third grade reading level. Uh, teachers union bitched and complained, and they said, if you do this, you're going to hurt so many black and Hispanic kids, or whatever the case was. And they said, well, she said, they don't care. We're going to give you more money for phonics, but can't read a third grade level, can't go to fourth grade, end of story. Uh, Mississippi went from number 49 in the country reading to number 21 in five years wow. because the teachers union in third grade reading test scores because the teachers union wasn't allowed to pass kids for failing any longer and neither were the principals and stuff like that. So, th I mean, there's, you know, I said this to people all the time at the school board, so even if we didn't have this trans stuff and the CRT and the constant lecturing out and the teachers and administrators having to go to these lectures and say they were here with their races all the time, um, it's not like the schools were monumental successes to begin with. <laughs> And we have a lot of work to do besides the re fighting over what, you know, what we did have or all the things that added on to it. Um, but it is, if they could do it in Mississippi, which spends a yeah. lot less money on education than, you know, New York does or Baltimore or Washington, D.C. or any of these other fabulous education places that we have uh, by not allowing failure to be moved up and not be beaten down by the race of you're a racist. If you do this, right. um, things can happen. Um, other than Florida, where, where Heavy D, our miracle governor, has ensured they will not be wasting money on diversity counselors and lectures, and that just sucks up so much money from these so schools. Much money. Um, are, there, are there other states that, that don't have all this diversity nonsense? Because a lot Oklahoma. of it is money being wasted. Oklahoma's working on it. So we help support this guy's name, Ryan Walters. He should come on the pod talk education with you. He's really, really smart. Oh, you met him, Ryan Walters. Yeah, um, because he came to your speech. I, I have the same speech oh, I yeah. came to. He won, and he is, and he he did uh, voucher programs for Christian schools, which liberals are blowing their head up that taxpayer money can now be used. Well, voucher vote. money for all schools, but allowing it to go to Christian. Yes, schools. allowing Christian so, schools okay. to go to so take voucher money, which has never been allowed before. Um, and his big thing is now he's been, you know, it's so funny because they have that libs of TikTok thing with all the teachers, and these teachers are like, if Ryan Walters wins, I will leave public education. Or like, okay, <laughs> he's checking it through exactly. Uh, no, he's been he's been working on gutting the entire CRT DEI system little by little through Oklahoma. He just got in like a few months ago, but he has had resounding success um there are other people there are school board members i've heard from different local school systems but on um, statewide level surprisingly little you know i've always said there have been three elected officials who reached out to me since i started the school board pack um DeSantis, jim banks and tom cod and those are the huh. three and that's the only three that reached out and none of them i mean the same is obviously not for education but jim and uh and tom cod aren't exactly education people right. that's what they're known for but they have heard what goes on and they were like this is really really horrendous um, i think i mean maybe not the teachers unions but often the union leadership is quite separate from what the members say but you would think the teachers would be kind of ticked off how about giving them raises they're the ones in the classroom and not just like the the stasi coming around the nazi block watchers making sure i mean at all at these schools there are there will be multiple diversity counselors or whatever they're called advisors and forcing forcing the, the teachers the parents the kids to go through this nonsense as opposed to teaching them math and reading 
How about upping the teacher salaries? They're the ones who are actually dealing with the students. And the teachers are the ones who have to go through these professional development classes to see or how they are a racist every day. If you think of the average person you knew who wanted to become a teacher, most yeah. likely a girl who liked kids and wanted summers off to be with their own kids and like the hours of teaching, that's most people. They were not usually ideological, you know, creatures who are like, let me, that's not most teachers. There's a few, but that's not most. Most teachers are press and force. My best friend is a seventh grade history teacher. He's a fabulous history teacher. And he is like, oh, we gotta do, we're doing a lesson plan that the state mandated, uh, or the New York City mandated rather. I said, what is it? He said, uh, immigrants contributions to the American revolution. <laughs> I said, what? That's a very short class. I go, what immigrants? <laughs> and he's like, you know, the French. I go, oh. Um, okay, not, I said, is that all you have to really work with? He's like, there was a few Polish people too. I go, okay, I mean, he's well, you're like- You're down so to Paul Revere and Paul Revere wasn't an immigrant. He and his family had been in this country for some time. No, there were no immigrant contributions. To the it's literally like, it's, it, but he has to teach it. I'm sure it wouldn't be his main thing to teach. He's like, I am mandated to teach this by the state of the city of New York City. So I have to teach immigrants. But those are the things I'm talking about is I'm sure that the school system and he would be doing much, much better if the teachers themselves and the local school, well, they don't school board anymore, but the school board had more say over lesson plans as to, um, you know, what, what, how to teach American history or whatnot. Um, and, and that's what's, and slowly it's reversing in some of the school districts that we've been winning school board elections. Well, also Okay, let me uh, see what's uh, going on here on Fox News. Community, listen, we need each other. We need each other living. We need each other breathing. We need to uplift one another. I'm not talking about the white community. I'm not talking about the Hispanic community. I'm talking about my own community. Oh, don't say anything. Why are we, why are we pointing that out? Why are we talking about it? Because we're dying. That's why. We're killing one another. That's why. You got black people scared to go in their own damn communities. Joe, you talk to some of these people in Philadelphia. Okay, that's going to do it for today. Take care. Bye-bye.